Uh, good evening, people. This is the Monday night seminar number 10. Uh, it is 7 p.m. in New York City and a whole lot of other times around the world. Uh, today, uh, we've got some interesting topics to discuss. We're going to try and talk about sustainability. We're going to talk about the environment. We might talk about the death of Osama bin Laden and anything else that is on the agenda. Agenda, I guess uh, Bob, Bob Dobbs is the special guest uh, today, which is um, a, a great thing. And um, let's let's get the show on the road. Well, I want to thank... Um you and other people for posting Marshall McLuhan's master's thesis 1934 from the University of Manitoba. Uh, that's an incredible find and it's available on our site to download a PDF and engage. And there may be, as I get to know it better, I would like to quote from it occasionally, but I haven't read it yet. So it's something we could use as a resource since it's the key, at least to the early McLuhan sense of humor and his literary decorum around satire and parody. So, we have Yana here. Let's go into whatever Yana wants to talk about that, since she's in the middle of an academic situation around communication studies. So, Yana, what, what's on your mind today about the, those areas of study? Uh, well, you know, a number of things. Um, I think one, that's one question that's been interesting that I've grown to um, accustomed to asking is, um, you know, when you're talking about a scholar or an idea or a theory, um, a good question to ask is what's not covered or what's not explained by perspective, and that kind of helps to, you know, provide, um, provide some context for what you're looking at. So in terms of uh, me having looked at McLuhan's work through your eyes, mostly, um, I guess I was wondering what you would think um, McClellan may have been lacking um, if, you know, I, I feel very sacrilegious saying those words out loud. Um, no, no, that's, but, a, that's okay. You know, um, what types of things do you think um, that are relevant to technological innovation, innovation and looking at things like that? Um, well, McClellan told me near the end of his life that he overestimated the rapidity that management would respond to the changes. He didn't know, he didn't, he didn't realize how slow, how much management could slow down change. So, and that's often what people have brought up instinctively in the 670s about how McLuhan, or they would call it impractical, can't be done, these changes, there's no evidence of these changes. Uh, say, a car manufacturing company uh, McLuhan would talk about them being able to customize the making of the car for each customer client, and that was not happening. So those general trends that he predicted and implied they were already happening weren't actually technically happening, and they never did happen the way he did it, the way he projected. There's that, that aspect of Marshall, I guess we'd call it on the actual practical realized level, that... Um, did not um, match with reality. Now, here's the thing. Does this relate to, sorry, the whole like diffusion of innovation, body of work, and you know that that kind of thing that looks at how how quickly things get taken up and you know. Okay. I'm not sure. So forth. Yes, I guess I'm not sure what you meant, but I want to add this part. The the point McLuhan understood though was that with imagery being uh, 
the TV landscape and then later the computer landscape that people lived in, the changes in the software design and uh, the possibilities that one could do with TV and cable TV and then, and then the computer and the Internet, that is where the change happened, not in cities got designed better or the old hardware environments, automobiles, uh, the change in the software environment, which enraptured everybody around the planet who had access to this media, that is where the real change was going on, and it wasn't going to be any possible change in the hardware level. They would not catch up. They'd just continue being slow change. You know, car companies would offer a new design every few years or something. The actual rapidity of change happened in the, in the software world. It's the image of change. And um, that's what McLuhan actually understood. He, management held down hardware, whatever you call that, practical levels of immediate registration of some new dynamic. But people, McLuhan would say, couldn't be bothered fixing up what management was concerned with because they were so involved in the endless change in the software consumption, television consumption, entertainment state that people were in. The, so you see that... Um, I'm talking about this practicality that many people say he failed to deal with, but he was right to point out how practical applications of whatever he had come up with uh, were irrelevant because everybody would be too busy trying to watch the TV programs. Yeah, Bob, perhaps another way of uh, interjecting oh, sorry, there. Oh, there's a, yeah, no, no, what, what, a, a speakerphone. There's an amazing uh, um, echo going on somewhere along the way. But oh, that could that I I'm not near it, but sometimes it's caused by my speakerphone. So I'll go downstairs. When I'm near the computer, you'll get the echo. So, you, but you just wonder if someone else has a speakerphone on. Yeah, well, there's just. Oh. Is it there now? I've gone downstairs. Yana, can you speak briefly? Yes. Ah, uh, yeah, it's gone. It's gone now, Bob. Okay. So, Yana, Yana was saying something, or you were going to say something, Andrew, about what yeah, I said. Yeah, I was uh, just saying that um, Scott Eastham often uh, made a similar mark, remark about McLuhan, suggesting that what he missed was uh, the force of inertia. He got front spin, he got back spin, he got all these other uh, dynamics, but he really missed the, um, underestimated the power of inertia. Right. Now, that could be seen in understanding media. By take today comes out in 72, he is talking about that. He's, um, what was the passing sentence that came to my mind? In Take Today, he talks about, he starts to explain the slowdown, the uh, management getting, getting in the way. Um, but he also knows that it, it's not going to matter, uh, that they are holding back on, okay, the inertia. Now, what... Right now, I just lost it. There was an inertia point in Take Today. Do you, can you think of how Take Today explains how management is being decentralized? And uh, he goes into why Bucky Fuller's vision is not going to be implemented due to people's obsessions and fetishes and, and things like that. Remember that part of the Take Today, Andrew? Uh, not particularly, but I'm also struggling a little bit. Um Oh, I'm noticing that in this conversation, having headphones on, um, both your voices are actually inside my head as opposed to coming from the outside. So I think that when you speak, I'm having your thoughts. And um, 
when the tone of people's voices shifts because of uh, the inadequacies of connection, I find I lose track of the words. So. Right. So, <laughs> can you take the headphones off? Yeah. No. No. I'm. But I'm trying. I'm. I'm okay. With different things. <clears throat> All right. It's not that we have to. F I should phone back in. I'm not causing an echo, right? Uh, no, no. It's just uh, I've, I'm coming in through Skype, and it's uh, sometimes problematic. All right. So, what did Scott Easton say? That Marshall missed the inertia. Yeah. Um. I guess he was uh, trying to gesture in the direction of the fact that. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's whether I'm, I'm not sure whether uh, Scott really got uh, McLuhan in terms of uh, uh, retrieval or the cliche to archetype process, but he was uh, definitely of that uh, opinion that um, these things that McLuhan were predicting based on exactly what had already happened, you know, were precisely not coming into existence. And so he's just using a, a, a different uh, word to gesture at the same phenomenon. Right, and I would, in my terms, say Scott. And that kind of critique was looking at the chemical body and physical bureaucracies and missing that people weren't living in the, in the chemical body, didn't even care about whether the things got fixed up or changed. They were going through so much change so that they lived 200 years every 12 months in when there comes to consumption of electronic media. That, to put the two together is, uh, is where McLuhan turns out to be more correct in the long run than those that objected to some kind of visible social change for the chemical body or physical body or for physical bureaucracies. Usually that tended to be a, a concern for ecology. Why didn't uh, pollution get stopped in the 70s? Why didn't the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States you know, have any real power? Why did it get bogged down in lobbyists and things like that? It's because they were trying to change the physical environment and that limited notion of the physical environment uh, missed the point that the real change that had to happen every day was in the electronic consumption and creation of information. You, you follow what I'm saying there? Yes. And so it was, it was a thought. It was a, it was a human thought. You know, just, um, you know, management just didn't keep up with it. But McLuhan also knew, uh, I mean, management just was a stick in the mud but he also knew that they were going to get in more and more trouble because they didn't know where the real change was going on. He thought management should make some changes immediately because he knew the electronic TV landscape would change, you know, incredibly every six months. But they, they now, oh, here's the thought from Take Today. So then he talks about how societies turn to stone. Remember that? Yeah, well, it's, um, I'm looking at a, a quote here from Understanding Media where there's... Um, uh, he's uh, where he is actually grappling with the inertia. The city, having formed for protection, unexpectedly generated fierce intensities and new hybrid energies from accelerated interplay of functions and knowledge. It, it burst forth into aggression. The alarm of the village, followed by the resistance of the city, expanded into the exhaustion and inertia of empire. These three stages of the disease and irritation syndrome were felt by those living through them as normal physical expressions of counter-irritant recovery from disease. Yeah, no, definitely he knew why things turned to stone. But, the, but nobody could see what was causing the change. I mean, you're talking about cities, you know, 3,000 years ago. The dynamic of uh, the ecology, that actually the rearview the rear mirror function was 
did slow down change, and to the, to the degree McLuhan was uh, conservative and, and was for slow change, he liked the fact that people were stupid about what was happening and stubbornly resisted it. But he, but he felt that in the 1670s and 80s, the level of resistance that you're talking about on the, in the cities and functions, the specialist functions of the city, was irrelevant when you had the electronic magnetic city, quoting Wyndham Lewis. There, yep. it, it's, the changes were not registered by the bureaucrats. Yet those in the baby boom generation who got bureaucratic jobs looked for bureaucratic change and got despondent because they were looking for some kind of institutional change, whatever field they're in, and missed the incredible change that was going on psychically uh, with the electronic turnover, basically a, a fad every six months happening. Yeah, I guess in cliché the archetype, the, uh, the extreme mobility of individual consciousness of the print-orientated man now reverses into tribal inertia of multi-consciousness. Right, and, and he called it the uh, Stone Age, a hyphen S-T-O-N-E-A-G-E-D, a Stone Age, which was a pun from Phoenix Wake on Astonish. Astonish becomes a Stone Age. He knew there was the, the static slowdown and in inertia, uh, which would become not progression of history, but eternity. But he knew that even that sense was upset. So you had both change happening and slowdown due to the electric environment, change being an image turnover. Because, Jana, all your life you've had to adjust with what the public thought was going on, as reported in the news environment. Right? That's, that we're used to that. But we don't really think about how much it changes things, at least your psyche and how you respond and where you get your moods from. So that's what architecture and uh, well, architects uh, missed. They were trying to design the city, city environments and missed the electronic city. And that was, the, that was begun with Wyndham Lewis's book, um, what's it, 1919, uh, Architects Mind, the Caliph's Design. Architects, Where's Your Vortex? Isn't that the title, Andrew? Uh, not the sure Caliph. on that one. The Caliph Design, Caliph's Design, 1919, subtitled Architects, where, are, where, are, where is, where are your vortex? Where is your vortex? Wyndham Lewis felt that the artists shouldn't be bothered painting paintings and making sculptures and little musical compositions. With the artist's sensibility of what was really going on in the environment, they should be uh, consultants at City Hall. Now, he wrote that in London. Marshall took that and developed it even more. So, Yana. When we're talking about design and sustainability, which level are we sustaining? Since inertia happens for the old bureaucracies anyways. They get sustained. They freeze on the controls. Okay, so it seems that you're basically kind of using um, what we call in my field a communication extrinsic view of the social world. So you're basically positioning things in the way that, you know, the diffusion, I guess, the diffusion of innovation is the term that we would use. In okay, that's good. Did you did you say communication extrinsic? Yes, communication as extrinsic. So when we look in, you know, at the social world, you can basically find explanations for phenomena, for interact any kind of interactive phenomena. 
in terms of them being um, communication extrinsic, so for example, psychological variables, uh, variable analytic research that's conducted mostly looks at variables that are outside communication, outside interaction. Um, outside human body interaction? Outside human body interaction, you mean? Uh, well, n not necessarily. I mean, the interaction is defined broadly as can be occurring with with a piece of technology as well. I mean, that's also... In You're talking about interacting with the technology. Yes. Yes, interacting with the technology as well as interpersonal interactions. Now, here's what McClure would say. What, what, what Marshall started in the 50s, by the 70s and 80s, bureaucracies and schools of architecture knew that the society was more complex and would come up with angles of study that you just mentioned. He would consider that over-analysis of change and bringing in some of the terms you just said, that was an effect of the electronic um, a stone age. The bureaucracy would get bogged down with analysis. Yes, so most of basically much of the research that's done in social science is communication extrinsic, and there are very few perspectives that are actually looking for answers within the interactional structure itself within the communication itself. Right. The way, which, the way you were speaking earlier when you said, uh, you know, management did not, did not do X, whatever. That right. basically implied that management's um, response was either adequate or inadequate to something that was going outside of whatever that concept of management is. But yeah. Another way of basically looking at it is saying, you know, so what were the interactions, what were managerial interactions like and what was the context of, of their communicative work that they were doing that either you know provided certain affordances that they could act upon to use that technology or provided certain constraints that prevented them from using that technology and it's not necessarily looked at as a decision that they make based on some extrinsic factor it's more of um, it's more of something that emerges as a product of their interaction. That's right. You can look at some statements. It's curious that Marshall told me that um, he thought management would uh, respond with the potential of what was happening more, more uh, than they did. But we know in his, his uh, utterances in different contexts, he was fully aware of that and the futility of the human condition. So he would make statements in the late 60s and early 70s he tells us the radical students, don't try to change the school because you'll just end up on committees. And you can see in the complexity of the information society happening in institutions by the 80s is everybody is busy processing reports and making memos about what the issues are. And there's endless explanation. He saw that. He even... In 1955, in one of the Aspirations essays, it might be radio and TV versus the absent-minded, he ends, his, his own writing in a paragraph merges with a quote from Finning's Wake, which talks about the brain trust, this would be in the 30s, taking over the administration of uh, government. The brain trust. He saw it moving to committee like very... Group think? Yes, gr yeah, group think. Group think. Yeah, groupthink. Is it like similar idea? Yeah, think, and he and he saw a lot of the... Uh, encounter groups or uh, what was it called, the human potential movement, which became used by management uh, a lot. Uh, what's his name? James, N John Nesbitt 
where someone wrote in on that kind of thinking, N-A-I-S-B-I-T, I think. He had studied a little McLuhan, but the idea of use having people interact and define their position within their job and having oversensitivity to how people, uh, whether they felt they had a valuable, valuable role in the, in the company, that kind of over-analysis um, McLuhan satirized and saw coming. So it was like uh, Nero dithering playing the fiddle <clears throat> as Rome burned. So you have the world being changed by satellite communication and then the uh, computer Internet stuff really changing everything to the point it collapses Wall Street in 2008. For 30 years before that, you got everybody else, you got people running around dithering and communicating and studying all these factors in management and architecture like you just said. You just said a bunch of jargon that we um, maybe don't even understand in a certain particular context. But this jargonization, uh, Marshall satirized, is the obsolescence of speech. So there was, if something's obsolete, there's more of it than anything else. So there's a lot of talk and a lot of papers being written about what the issues are. Now, is, what I'm saying, does that have anything to do with what you were pointing out? Um, or are you talking about specific was relevant to what I was pointing out. It's not really what I had in mind. But, you know, it's kind of hard because I come from sort of a different tradition and, um, you know, I'm probably not, this is my first experience in this kind of arena trying to explain. Um, okay, well, name in, in simple terms, what is the tradition you say you're from? And we'll figure out how that matches or not with McLuhan. Uh, well, basically, I guess I subscribe to the language and social traction perspective. Which social T-R-A-C? Tra tra traction? Language and social interaction. Interaction. Okay, yeah. yeah. So oh, when you say those words, language and social interaction, that's what McLuhan calls media ecology. Now, okay. what do you think you mean, and then we'll figure out what he means. Well, I guess w what I mean is, the way that the field is defined as it's a subfield of communication discipline and right. basically focuses on language as being constitutive of the social world. And, and that is, that's verbal language. Right? Verbal so, language? So the broader term is communication. So Okay. Yeah. Part of what you would be looking at are doing things like conversation analysis when you literally look at utterances. So there's yes. different types of analysis that can be done on different levels. So the micro level of analysis would be looking at utterances and literally doing conversation analysis and then gaining something from that analysis that would allow you to comment about the way people interact. But by only looking at the interaction itself, as opposed to, let's say, what people think or what they feel or... That is so McLuhan-esque. As I interpret your words, that's exactly the kind of stuff that Marshall did in a very simple way in the 40s and 50s, where he would talk about Gertrude Stein, you know, talked about uh, the gestures underlying semantic overlay. You could take that sentence and apply it to the more bureaucratic, jargonistic way you're speaking, and so... What happened is that everybody, by necessity, became a media ecologist in management. You're describing people studying the effects of different forms of communication. You actually are doing that, and it's way more complex than uh, McLuhan. Uh, 
but but it is the it is what McLuhan was doing, and he acted out what people would be doing in management and consulting uh, for the next seventies, eighties, and nineties. They well, actually all became McLuhan. Describing is is sort of is something other than what the mainstream, you know, the field of management does. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, contract so is a really popular way of looking at, you know, exploring anything. But um, I'm okay. But the perspective I'm talking about is more descriptive uh, as opposed to explanatory. Right. So what kind of job would an expert who graduated in communication discipline would go towards? Uh, you mean graduated with uh, like an undergraduate degree? No, well, whatever level they, they got their, their PhD, uh, they got their, their bachelor level. What field, well, you just described about the uh, subsets of the way people talked and how that was studied. What field would that knowledge be hired to work in? Well, the language and social interaction perspective is typically not even introduced at the undergraduate level because it's not, um, it's not something, typically in the communication departments, people who graduate with an undergraduate degree are doing things like journalism, uh, media studies, public relations, marketing. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, consulting, various now, types. Now, there's of a difference. Soft skills types of things. Right. The, diff the difference is, is that what you say is done in graduate level. Marshall, in a simpler time, wanted it done in high school. So yes, the and ideally, it would be great if it were done earlier because it opens up this whole new way of understanding the world where you can actually say something meaningful about what you know as opposed to you know, imply something about what you don't know and standardize and generalize people to the point of, uh, you know, complete oblivion. Um, yeah. The, so management had to create jobs for teachers to create the undergraduate courses and did not allow what we call, what I call the meta level of looking at the process. When you get the PhD in any of these fields, when you get the postgraduate study, you find out that nobody really has any definite answers and they're actually talking about the process of being a physicist or a chemist or a doctor uh, more than the actual rote-by-rote yeah. rote content that you get in, in the undergraduate less, there's level. There's less and less, yeah, less and less knowledge. That's right. <laughs> it's, more, it's more making up interested in... That's right. More the questions. That's right. Marshall said... Um, 20th century man ran down the street saying, I've got all the answers, but what are the questions? And Marshall yeah. said he had the questions, and he thought they should be put into high school. That's the... Well, you that's know, the, that's, that's fantastic, and it reminds me of uh, there's a garbage, uh, garbage can model of decision-making uh, that March and Olson developed that actually focuses on the idea that, um, you know, sometimes decisions are made by compiling... It's important to pay attention to the questions that people have in meetings, and then yeah. um, you would find answers later. But it sort of you know turns the whole idea of decision making. Yeah, you just um, gave me another example. You can talk. If I talk to a professional, someone who works in some field, and in the field you're talking about that you're studying, you find out that the things they do are what McClellan asked to be done. But it's, it's very complexified and bureaucratic, and people get jobs out of asking these questions. <laughs> they can't implement the questions or come up with something uh, applicable. 
And that McLuhan would call the elephantiasis, meaning huge, big like an, like an elephant, the elephantiasis of speech acts. And, and another way to say it is obsolesced. So it's interesting that what are the kids engaged in, in, in undergraduate, the details, the myth of the profession, and when they get to the postgraduate, uh, the best thing to come up with is those people who just cited who recommended studying the questions people asked. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we study the questions, though, would be a good, uh, a good way of framing it. <laughs> right, so, I tried to teach my kids that. But <laughs> right, so you have, um, this is where McLuhan is a modern poet. He used to say that um, in Western culture, in European culture, the, the poet would... Uh, influence the dialect of the tribe or the or the language of the culture and come up with some new ideas like Wordsworth came up with the idea of child as father to the man. That idea led to a lot of specialist psychological notions in the nineteenth century. And then Darwin changes the language with uh with the origins of the species. Uh, you have these major um <clears throat> verbal ideas that influence the culture. Now McLuhan was an influence not only on the word level, like the phrase is the global village to meet his message, he was talking about the influences that environments had on language. And he it's actually ironic though that, you know, his words are um, because I vaguely remember having, you know, heard the concept of global village and I think it's because I was actually paying attention. Um but he wasn't he was not a prominent figure that was No, but it was so much part of the language, these phrases that people forgot who originated. Uh, McLuhan used to say that... People don't actually know what they mean. <laughs> that's right. I've discovered that as well. Yeah, and uh, he used to say that jokes are very hard to find the origins of. A joke shows up, it seems to be something that responds to the zeitgeist, and it, you can't find out who invented it, any particular joke. So, But what's interesting about McLuhan is he was talking about changes in the environments that were not linguistic. And to the degree one understood what he was pointing at, it did come to pass, those kind of changes and inertia uh, of the older media. So that as a poet, he influenced people's behavior, not just the words, <clears throat> the aphorisms they came up with. So that the asking of questions, and you cited those people who asked for it as a particular uh, academic suggestion, asked the questions, studied the questions, that's what Marshall actually did. So he Do you really think his influence was significant enough to have affected people literally? Um, yes. That, I'm saying that because he was responding to the new languages, which were the new environments, and how he reacted to them in his, the twinkle of his eye or the different ways he, he uh, showed himself when he got interviewed and what he said in, in lectures that he was miming, and Don Thiel lays this out in his book on McLuhan, Marshall was a syndrome, like the canary, in the mind, acting out what, what society's behaviors would become. So you can see that people have all become media ecologists in various slang versions or crude versions or hyper-jargonistic versions in the professional management world. That, that's the, so it's a new kind of... something, right? Beg your pardon? We're all media something. That's right. And, and so, um, let's see. Uh, so the idea that the poet changes the verbal language of a tribe, of a culture, 
Marshall saw that newer media changed way more than the verbal content of a society. It changed other newer or older media. He acted on that level and influenced people as they um, responded themselves to these environments, which involved everybody because everybody was subject to them. So you end up with uh, the guy who started Wired magazine, uh, Louis somebody, Louis somebody, making McLuhan patron saint of Wire magazine, but he didn't know why. He couldn't explain why he felt McLuhan was on the right track. He just said that when we started making the magazine, to me it sounded like what Marshall was writing about in his book, The Medium is the Massage. So I figured uh, he was an influence on me. What, what the guy, uh, the founder of Wire, didn't realize is that he, he was living in an environment that the dynamics of which McLuhan was already acting out himself. And that's why one feels her influence. So you, you end up with people like yourself who never read McLuhan, but are actually involved with McLuhan effects in academia that are not attributed to McLuhan's work. <laughs> we, we attribute those to other, to other yeah. people. Sociologists, that's yeah. right. Yeah, Specialized sure. units. Yeah, you take linguistic anthropology, you know, sociolinguistics, I mean, those types of traditions. Right, McLuhan. Yeah, and, and McLuhan yeah, said. Yeah, comment on those things. Can. Yeah, so McLuhan said that anthropology anthropologists study culture as art forms. He studied media, meaning not TV shows per se, the effects of newer environments on older environments. He studied them as art forms. Now that covers everything that people do. So he was the most generalist. Eric McLuhan once said that he specialized in generalisms. But that's verbal generalisms. Dealing with the environmental effects, we'll find that everybody can, you can't think past what McLuhan thought. You end up with the same questions, questions. and the human sits on the sideline unable to do, apply that to the, uh, these macro environments. So McLuhan said, even if you had a brilliant genius philosopher king uh, take over society as president or whatever, it would be useless. The guy would not have any influence because the environments, the media environments, were bigger than any particular bureaucratic institution's response. And he made fun of Spiro Agnew in the 70s when Agnew was blaming the media elites of New York City and of the press and the first, uh, Nixon's first administration, blaming them for creating a bad image of Nixon. And he called them media ninny. It became quite famous, uh, whatever he called them, ninny minis or something. Uh, some insulting uh, pansies, media pansies. And, and Marshall wrote immediately that he said, Mr. Agnew, and he re referred to T.S. Eliot's poem, Agnew uh, uh, Sweeney Agonistes. He said, Spiro Agonistes, you forgot the media are bigger than you's. Y-O-U-S-E. So it's like a... I don't know, was that Italian, Bronx, or some kind of slang term, bigger than used. But he was pointing out, here's, here's uh, Spiro Agnew complaining about the content uh, people, people writing editorials and all that, and doing comedy on TV shows. And he pointed out to Spiro, well, this effect is way beyond the content criticism of you and Nixon because the environments are bigger than you. You're, you're, you're obsolete in having any input and control. So that's an example of the human answer from Alfred level, not able to answer anything and only come up with questions, which is I what you think, would... 
Yeah, I do think it's really interesting that when we start with a question of what did uh, McLuhan perhaps not not comment on, um, yeah. end up with the answer that he has answered uh, all questions before. He answered all asked. questions. He he answered all. No, that's no, that's a good point. He answered In less than an hour. <laughs> yeah, he answered all questions, but nobody understood what I call the TV landscape, the TV body, they didn't know that that was where the change was going on. And people like Scott Easton or anybody were looking at bureaucratic, chemical, physical body responses to what was going on. They were not looking at the discarnate body. That was McClellan's term, discarnate angelization. And they, you can't even see it. You can only register the effects on your kids or in education to the point now they don't even have textbooks in school. In the United he States. kind of provided the ultimate example of this uh, garbage can model of decision making, having provided the answers before there were people to ask the questions. Right, and, and no, exactly. And he, the answer was his answer to management: if you're freezing on the controls and and becoming, uh, you know, inertial, turn off the new environment for a few months. That's the only answer. You got to turn off television so the society can get a breather from it. Don't change. Uh, don't have garbage recycling. Don't have uh, well. What what changes have there been? Uh, seat belts in cars. Um, pollution standards in emissions. All these little tiny little adjustments that were considered revolutionary by the first George Bush, and he bragged about it when he ran for president. Were dis- were workings and changes on the chemical body, not the real action, the electronic body, or the discarnate angel, or the super angel. You see that nobody was dealing, and I'll say that, I think that's clear, uh, that people weren't addressing the real world of change. And so they, they, they marked Marshall on how well the physical body changed, <laughs> or the physical institutions. And he just said, oh, they all just end up bogged down in committees. <laughs> you know, when you're talking about committees, so um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh there's a sociologist, uh, her name is Helen Schwartzman, the University of uh, Chicago, and she, uh, she wrote this dissertation that was published um, I mean, a few years later. Um, it was called The Meeting. And uh, so she, just, she did an ethnography of this organization. She went into this nonprofit and uh, studied, um, basically attended every meeting they had, and there was some kind of a merger of several nonprofits. And... Um, so she ended. She started off studying organizational change, and that was her idea. And she wanted to see how you know organizations incorporate others and get transformed, and how they deal with change and all that. But she actually ended up writing her work about the fact that meetings um, are what organizations are about, as opposed to vice versa. And she said that without the meeting form, there would be no organization. And exactly. Everything, you know, all the relational and task-based, instrumental kinds of goals were were accomplished in meetings, but not not in terms of what the agenda was set up, but all these other kinds of goals that were accomplished. No, that that's a very good statement what you made. Um, uh, so one gets thoughts uh, from that uh, McLuhan thoughts. So. Um, this is this study was done in the 80s or 90s? Yeah, I think like 81, 1981. And she actually, so she took a bunch of notes. She was a part of this organization for about six months. And then I think she sat on the whole thing for about five years. And then <laughs> she, 
she revisited stuff and she realized that her sort of original framework uh, that she went in there with was not what she actually saw. And it took her a bunch of years to figure out that it was all kind of backwards, that she just thought that, you know, people met to do things, but she actually discovered that, um, you know... The meeting was the medium. The meeting itself was the institution. Now, McLuhan, you can always find it when you really know a lot of what McLuhan said. And that means you're reading the newspaper articles, the scattered remarks here and there, the articles. If you have a good memory, which I have, you find it. You can come up with a a joke or something that McLuhan, McLuhan, what he said, applied to. For example, I know he said one time somewhere in an article, he said, there's no point in calling executives. They're all tied up in meetings, and you can't get them on the phone. <laughs> now, he's saying that in the 60s. That's the very dynamic that you're saying is even filtered down to nonprofits. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's all about the meetings. And, you know, so uh, this book has been introduced in my graduate program, and some people have read it, and now it's kind of like a running joke, um, especially with the faculty meetings. And the irony is that, you know, everyone largely views meetings as a waste of time. And whenever you talk to people in pretty much any kind of organizational context, you know, they would say meeting is a waste of time. But yet, so, but we waste that time so much in that way. And you know what? You know, i got to say this. To accomplish. <laughs> yeah, he said the community in general, the communities need to know, was threatened by electric media, but the community needed to know, and meetings in any organization are the way everybody is monitoring each other's reaction to the chip landscape, the media electronic pattern thing that's happening. And so every day they have meetings to see how people survive the last 12 hours as they listen to the news or whatever they process. It was a monitoring uh, of what I'd call the TV body or the chip body, those landscapes, by the chemical body and the reason, and so the community could have a sense of uh, the need to know would be answered. I noticed that in meetings, that meetings were really about finding out where everybody was to define how they're going about getting something done, but what had to be done probably never could get done, just keep showing up at the meetings to say, well, uh, Nixon made this statement, so uh, we're going to have to change our budget because of that. Do you follow what I'm saying? The mo- meetings were for monitoring the TV body, not the physical body. Yeah, totally. And uh, so, you know, the the whole thing that she wrote, she's at Northwestern now, and uh, yes, it's uh, the correct spelling. Andrew, great job on Twitter. Um, just a little, you know, promo for... Right. Um, yeah. So she uh, she actually devised this diagram of the organization uh, that was meeting-based as opposed to using the actual organizational chart. And she <laughs> said that, you know, by... by sort of taking the meeting forum as, as the primary way that the organization is constituted, you suddenly realize what all those other types of relationships are and who, you know, who are the people that are actually in control and who are the true decision makers and that those people are very often not at all the same ones that are, you know, positioned. The official bureaucracy. Yeah. In other words, you have the, the president of the United States is the head of the physical body world, the authority, but his intelligence people, his national security directors, they're the ones processing the data every day, telling him what he as a robot yeah, gets exactly. to say. Exactly. Yes, yeah, so and when, you know, when, when he made the announcement yesterday about, uh, sorry to completely divert for a second, but uh, Osama bin Laden's been killed, and they thought it was interesting how he made it such a point. I mean, it's understandable seeing if he's running for re-election here shortly and yeah. he needs uh, the, poll, uh, the points, 
But when she said, you know, so having reviewed the intel, I made the decision that it was the right time um, to go and conduct this operation. And I thought, you know, there, he was assigning so much agency to his own action and, uh, you know, so much authority to this being his decision without <laughs> actually acknowledging, you know, the people. I mean, he's a community organizer from Chicago, you know. That, I mean, that's right. He wouldn't be able to probably make that decision any better than, you know, all of us would be. Um, yeah. But, yeah, and, yeah, so... Okay, people, yeah, so, so um, what I used to... Um, I noticed the meeting process is what it was all about. Back uh, after McLuhan said uh, we'd end up all in committees, and I remember that and watched it. And so I, I decided that I'd be like an, uh, an alien, an outsider, and I'd see Western culture to prop up the past would get together and speak and have pieces of paper. Total Gutenberg specialist media. Speak, have your memos, have your little notes, and talk. Sure. It was a fundamental... Yeah, the artifacts of the meeting are so important because there's no meeting without that tangible, you know, agenda yes. and the memo that then comes out of it. So in the electronic turnover, 24-7, where you're living 200 years every 12 months, just think of that, that image of rapidity. That's a description of the life of the uh, TV body and the TV landscape and then the chip landscape. That turnover, you can see that the West, they had to translate that ineffable environment, that ineffable hidden ground that was just influencing everybody but no one put their finger on, they had to translate back into their familiar media. And the familiar media was to speak and write notes, which became called meetings. That is a fundamental reaction to the turnover that the electric environment created. See? Now, a sociologist, now that means that every, every physical body action and its interactions with automobiles, older media, not the invisible electronic media, but any of the older media from, I don't know, railroads to uh, architecture to buildings, um, okay, where was I going? So the, the trans, oh yeah, and so a student or a, a scholar can come in and look at any, any one of those physical body interactions with the uh, media environment, the old media, and make a pattern out of it and, and observe it because they're all, it's all what McLuhan called anthropology stud, studies, uh, cultures, art forms. By the 80s, anybody in a university environment can study any action of a bunch of humans in relation to some kind of media, in other words, become a mediacologist, and make a pattern to write a PhD or to make a report on. The point is, is that this person, this Helen person, is in the medium of meetings, thinking it's doing it, the institution's doing whatever the nonprofit did, and starts to notice the form of the medium, the form of the institution, in the meetings. See, th yeah. th what I'm trying to say is you can take any chemical body interaction with any older media, and that will be fodder for a book or something. Because that's, and that's rearview mirror. That's not where the action is. So that everybody becomes, Bipple said this last week, or Richard, everybody becomes an anthropologist. But they're not studying cultures, they're studying older recognizable media forms. And they're studying the interaction of people with the media forms and what yeah. you know, the people are doing to them and vice versa. And they often, if they... Um, if they're a good writer, they might come up with a humorous interpretation of their PhD and write a bestseller, like the Peter Principle and uh, Stephen Potter, McLuhan. We have this uh, lecture by McLuhan to the publishers meeting in the spring of 69. And he names off the three or four uh, management books. 
humorous management books. And one of them was a Peter Principle. Another one was uh, One Upmanship by Stephen Potter. And he's saying these descriptions of the absurdity of life and management in the 60s are figures and rearview mirror of a situation that these humorous books aren't addressing. The books are addressing the human paradox futility within the new electronic ground, but it's in recognizable terms like someone, the Peter Principle, someone rises to the top, to the level of their incompetence. Right? The Peter Principle. Remember that? Right. Yeah, yeah. You rise to your level of incompetence. McClure would say, well, that's normal for the chemical body in Western society or maybe every society when the, when the TV body is taken over and no one knows how to deal with it. And all you can do is turn off the TV landscape slash body by turning it off. So, you go, um, I always remember Lance Strait telling me, he's, he started the Metecology Association when I met him in 98. He had flirted with the entertainment world in some form, I don't know, as a comedian or something, and he would oscillate back and forth whether he could make it in the entertainment world or be a, a professor at the university. And I guess he didn't make it in the entertainment world, so he fell back into the academic world, and he always had a sense of, sense of humor about what was going on because he had that angle. But... He had to position himself into a, a, a medium of academia where he would write his humorous patterns that he noticed in a serious academic context. Right. Well, you know, another line of work that this, um, just thinking of, not the, not the comedic um, version, but the academic version is basically about how to, how to, discipline, how to discipline media and how to use that to discipline people and so forth. So another ethnography that was pretty cool, sort of in the line with the same time period as Schwartzman, um, called uh, Engineered Culture. Right. And uh, so that was a really interesting study of an organization and the way they um, the way they obtained buy-in and the way they controlled the workforce by not physically controlling them, but by engineering culture. The information pattern. No, that's the the larger yeah, pattern. Explaining the communication that was taking place, and you know, constraining certain ways that people could interact, and then affording others, and so channeling. Um, that's right. They would control the way, the content or the way people use their mouths. Right. Right. Not in the fascist sense or totalitarian, but in uh, who could talk to who. Um, so you had a good pattern there. You were just saying uh, engineering culture. Um, he said that uh, in the late 70s, he said, the larger patterns of data organization were left to the elites of management. Now, that would be the Henry Kissinger level, the security level, about whether Osama, the decision to say whether Osama bin Laden is alive or not. That larger, simple pattern would manage a whole society. And, you know, it's like George Bush couldn't, couldn't admit that there were UFOs if there were uh, any, and whether the White House agreed that there were UFOs or not was the deciding of what everybody in the culture could think on, a, on a, an official level. So engineering culture is a replay of McLuhan saying in the New York Times in 1974, the word makes the market. Now, you'd see that in organizations. So the engineering culture, which is the big the, the statement of where we're at, which is the reason everybody's doing daily and espionage and having meetings every day to figure out how people are responding to the chaotic information we're environment. We're all engineered. That's right. Yeah. And so engineered culture, if Marshall saw that phrase, he'd say engineered culture is an 
inevitable condition when you have a satellite global theater. Then every culture becomes engineered. Now, this person writes that book, notices it in certain institutions, doesn't see it on the big level all across the board. And on the big level across the board, applied to any culture, is what McClellan worked at. That's the level he worked at. And that's, that's commenting and on... on the bigger level, that term becomes the idea of design, which is, this, right. um, you know, is applied in so many different fields, and obviously information uh, architecture and, you know, literally architectural design, interface design, and there's so many design things. But the whole <laughs> thing is that literally um, there is, there's this... Um, I think something like seedmagazine.com, S-E-E-D magazine. Yes, I know that magazine. Yeah, so they have um, a number of just cool articles on various topics, and uh, there was a recent one, and I noticed that actually among the options for the tags, they have, you know, research policy, technology theory, and they had design, and uh, so I clicked <laughs> on it, and they had this great article about how design is becoming this really hot, you know, hot catchword in in Europe, and that the European Union, the United Nations, are actually starting to um, form meetings, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. form committees for <laughs> the 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 promise of design and how can we use design in public policy? And you know, this article is positioning it as this great new promise, you know, for the next for the next century. And I'm thinking, this is not you know, this is not a new idea, but it's. Uh, no, this is where now. There's a lot to say. This, this is good stuff, Yanabi. It's really good stuff because in Take Today came out in '72. He's talking about what goes on in the committee world, committee-ridden world, and their jargon. Because Take Today is about the executivist dropout. He's showing that the executive management role players like Spiro Agnew and Nixon are dropouts. They actually, are dropouts. Yeah. Uh, like like their kids who went off to hate Ashbury. But he. He also says there's a drop-in phenomena. But he lists, he, he has this chapter made up of all these. And if you have Take Today there, just pick one of the chapters where he lists off about 12 functions. And it always struck me that he, uh, one of them was designing. Now, design becomes the all-purpose word. I'll have to check it out. Beg your pardon? I said I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Really cool. So, so I, I noticed that. He was making fun of Bucky Fuller, who coined, who created the idea, the archetypal meaning of design as a comprehensive term for managing and engineering culture to the benefits of everybody. So I noticed in the 80s and 90s, design would be, like you say, in every profession. They got somebody using the word design. Now, design would mean the big picture of what's happening on the TV landscape level. The big pattern, which is what everybody's always trying to figure out. They have their jobs. They do what they do bureaucratically on the physical level. But the super physical level of the discarnate pattern of processing, what's Obama going to say about Osama bin Laden, that is the larger design. So you have to apply design to four levels, the four bodies. So what you're yeah, saying... The larger structures have been explored by some, like Herb Simon um, wrote The Sciences of the Artificial which was like a huge work that basically explored the idea of design on a pretty meta-theoretical level in terms of, you know, just unraveling sort of the structures of complexity within each other. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. Now, now McClellan would say that design is the taking over of the matching, of the making sense. A tribal man made patterns. It didn't match with what the books say which he called, Marshall called matching sense. That comes with Gutenberg. When you get into the 20th century, advertising is a way of making sense 
for an industry. The ad tells you what the industry and its products mean. So it begins the designing is the uh, making. So McClune would fit this larger design cliche everywhere as this, everybody is 24-7 involved in surveillance and espionage of each other in meetings or in between corporations and governments to design their press release about where they think we are. <laughs> yeah, it's just so bad how you are. <laughs> That's right, what, what you have to say about this and that. And it, now, what's great is McClune gives the broader principles that when you have an electric environment, Instant response is required. You have to participate. You have to react. You have to speak. Back in the Gutenberg era, you know, Benjamin Franklin would write a letter, and uh, he, Jefferson wouldn't have to respond until a year later. You know, they write a letter to Paris. The, the speed up of response, and the electric environment requires a response. Today, or the last 30 years, the response was translate what you think is going back into, or what you think is going on, into the protocols of your midi, your meeting and your committee and what you said and translate into piece of paper and reports. And so you have this... Ideally, you use the response for some reflection and redesign. Yeah, which doesn't you don't have time to do because then you have to respond to the next thing that showed up a week later and make a report on that. So my... Process. That's right. Endless process, and Marshall satirized the process of all this interaction... And my immediate response to your this new idea that a design, as you know, is an old thing, but design is taking over Europe, and everybody's saying that's the, the buzzword of the year, that follows into McLuhan's idea that there always was a word every year. He, wrote, he and Barry Nevitt wrote this in 68, the word of the year, and they went through all the words of the years over the last 15 years before 1968. Well, the word of the year is design. Now, here's the ground. Because engineering culture was always going on during the, uh, the economic boom from 1982 to 2008, there always was a designing of the virtual economy by the news and the, and the Kissingers and the president where they made the word, word makes the make market. That has collapsed. And when it's collapsed, then everybody uh, gets involved in doing it because it's obsolete. So the designing of everything as a buzz pattern it's just everybody uh, responding to the fact you can't design the situation anymore. The ground is this <laughs> yeah, world can't be designed today. Deep trouble, so. Yeah. yeah. So sorry, I'm just looking at the beginning of the article. So it says we have only begun to tap into design's real potential to serve as a tool for policymaking, governance, and social agendas. When used correctly, it can integrate innovation into people's lives. That's incredible. There, there's media ecology. Everybody is always putting on their reason is to make lives more, to make society and media and cyborg life more comfortable for the citizens. That's the answer to everything. Everybody's saying, like the, your sentence there. Well, how did it end? We want to make innovation more amenable. What was that you said when there? Used, when used correctly, it can design can integrate innovation into people's lives. <laughs> no, that they're talking about. Chemical body apparatuses, not the fact that we, right now, while we're on the phone, every one of us is knowing, geez, there's a lot of crap going on being reported that I'm not aware of, and not everybody is thinking about that, but you, in two hours, when you leave this conversation, you'll go check to see what's happened. That's what's been the real design. That's the real innovation, the information patterning. What is it, what's going to happen to the image that Os Osama's did? That's the design that's real happening, and yet all the institutions say, we will come up with uh, uh, making uh, innovation more comfortable for people, but they're always talking about the physical body, not the chip body, which is what everybody's involved in. 
And I say the chip body has become obsolete. Everybody's engaged in it. It's totally visible. And that's what these guys mean when they say, wow, we can put design in everything. McLuhan called that in 72 the anticipatory democracy. He said we move from a participatory democracy to anticipatory, where we study the effects of everything. That's all they mean. They're going to have uh, design. The way they're meaning is that we well, look at know, the effects. I've got to tell you that anticipatory is another really catchword um, <laughs> and this new, new idea in sustainability because, you know, the idea is that companies used to be um, very retroactive in their uh, efforts and social reporting and things like that, and they would be reactive, whereas now they're becoming, and there's this idea of anticipatory sustainability, so you're, you know. <laughs> yeah, no, and that is expressed in pop culture with the movie Minority Report, where the crime police agencies would anticipate when the crimes would happen. Right, I saw that. Yeah, so, so that is what McClellan meant by media ecology, but he said, you can, you can do all your committee meetings and pattern anticipation, but it will not keep up with the unforeseen effects unless you turn off the uh, television environment. So you could have all of your meetings, and everybody's talking about, wow, we can, we can do this and that and make innovation more comfortable for people. That's all irrelevant as long as the electronic 24-7 uh, quantum turnover is happening. Now, who, then you get to the issue of how you're going to turn it off. Nobody's going to agree to turn off the TV environment. And it was that position that led to Marshall's you satire. Can't. No one can turn off the TV right. environment. It, it's, you know, isn't it like part of the fabric of how... That's right. So, uh, and I mean the Internet, more the Internet environment today. You can't turn it off. So yeah. what does that mean? Yeah. That means many jobs, much work for educated people to write reports about how we could anticipate everything across the field. And how See, we could design the heck out of you know, yeah. things like <laughs> Right. And uh, so I know some of the people listening aren't uh, involved in the PhD world or the world you're, you're, you're quoting, but they're probably amazed at the jargon that you're citing. I'm not critiquing you for this, not critiquing you for this jargon, but you're giving an example of what the language of management is and what they say. They fragment and divide up all the activities of the chemical body interacting with old media and come up with these patterns and purposes and, and institutions and grant re reception, <laughs> grant money reception. Well, this more recent stuff, I mean, this is from a popular publication, you know, aimed at just people who are, like, moderately interested in the world around them. What's it called? Seed. Seed magazine. Yeah, Seed. Yeah, I think if it's a Seed magazine, they're, they're like the old Omni magazine. They talk about the intellectual trends or the more educated yeah, they're trying to popularize. It seems like they're trying to popularize, um, you know, some. some what we're talking about. Right. They don't. They don't popularize McLuhan, <laughs> but they'll popularize no, subsets of McLuhan. They'll popularize subsets of McLuhanism that people wouldn't even recognize are come from McLuhanism. I. I don't think there is. I mean, even Zbigniew Brzezinski, when he wrote his famous book around 1970, that led to him being named National Security. Uh, a leader, director, under Carter's administration, his book is total McLuhanism. As a matter of fact, Andrew Richard Barbrook's book, what's it called, Images of the Future? Uh, imaginary Futures. Yeah, he uh, names uh, Zabrinsky and Daniel Bell as the two biggest uh, appropriators um, of McLuhan. Right, and the reason is that when you're on the level of uh, national security or at least the level of the president, you're going to give the big picture. 
And McLuhan knew that the big picture could not be stated because that was the bird's eye view, and that was visual space. The big picture cannot be stated by the elites of management ever again after the 50s. And so because he, he diagnosed that problem, then the actual big picture guys, like the National Security Director and Zabrinsky, would go one step below McLuhan and talk about, yes, we may one day not be able to determine what's going on and chaos will break out. <laughs> they would not say why it would happen or why it was happening due to the electronic environment. They'd drop down one level. But McLuhan had the big level covered. You couldn't get past um, that big level. And every institution, depending on its scale in the society, would adapt that big perception uh, to their local needs. Local, de not needs, local definition of what scale they thought they could judge what was happening in the information environment. Hey, Bob, uh, if I can uh, possibly suggest we go full circle uh, on this, first of all, Jana opened with the question, uh, what was missing in McLuhan, what was uh, absent from his view? So what has changed in the environment now that enables us to uh, get beyond McLuhan? Well, um, depending on what level you come in, McLuhan is uh, relevant. Uh, he's not relevant when you get into the subtleties of the chip landscape, which he didn't get to write about. But the idea of the medium is the message is, is the most general thing you could teach in, in grade five and high school, that when you bring in a new technology, it will be the big cause, bigger cause of change, even in the way they go to high school. You point out how it affects them, not some abstract place. So the general principle that technologies change us is uh, going to be around for the next two or three hundred years, let's say. So McLuhan's got that down. It's, it's like the origin of species, Darwin. Everybody uh, in academia takes that as pretty factual. They don't like the creationism. Even though McLuhan predicted that society would fragment and the fundamentalist Christian view of creation versus Darwin would, would uh, proliferate in that local scale. That would be a phenomenon within the United States. So... The medium is the message, is the most general practical advice to any citizen ever for the next two or three hundred years. Then you get into the particulars of well, what medium is happening now. And Baudrillard was pretty good in pointing out that the medium of uh, the, um, what do you call it, uh, virtual reality and the beginning of the digital life, it was not useful to look at it as a medium. In other words, he refined McLuhan's point so that you wouldn't see that there was television here and radio over there and books over there. They became a seamless web. That environment meant that you couldn't distinguish what one medium from another. That was a new effect of the digital media. So Baudrillard described the new, the new effect or the new problem using McLuhan, but he had to say McLuhan's statement, the medium is a message, is not relevant anymore. You follow the complexity here? Yes. And that, and that Yana, is what... Uh, McClune had anticipated he would tell you why the effects would appear to be different depending on the medium. So McClune is always relevant on that level, but the terms in understanding media aren't relevant. You can't use his language. As a matter of fact, the new issue is McClune is so much part of everybody's media ecology sensibility and how they, why they go to meetings that you, you need a whole new language or a new approach, not a verbal language, but a new approach to point out the hidden ground the way McLuhan always was pointing out the hidden ground. Everybody's become a McLuhanite, in, from pop culture levels to the highest level. Rudimentary media ecologists, in the sense they know that technology is changing them, right? That really became obvious in, in the 90s to people. 
So if if technology changing the technology, you know. Beg your pardon. Or we are changing the technology. Yes, we actually with Web 2.0 we change the technology. So the hidden ground would be the effect of the digital landscape is that we don't, we are not affected by media. That's the new application of McLuhan. That's what I take. That because the digital landscape is so involved in itself, the chemical body is sitting on the sidelines and is not affected by media anymore. And I say that started in the 70s with the me decade. It, it gets more and more intense. But now people are not affected by uh, the medium as they think McLuhan meant when he said the medium was a message. But that is the nature of this particular medium, that people will think they're not affected by it. See? So that fits into McLuhan's larger principle, but you can't use McLuhan's words to prove McLuhan today. <laughs> yeah, I was waiting for that. I think what you just said in the last two minutes is exactly what I was trying to say. I mean, I didn't think that's what I was waiting for, but now that I've heard it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's what you... That's that right. An it, answer for my that's right. That's right. And McLuhan used to say, I don't know what I think until I say it. You didn't know what, whether I was right or not until you heard it. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, said with the right rhythm. I'll, I'll let you have that. <laughs> right, right. So the, the thing is, um, uh, that's why it's good to start off with Scott Eastman's objection to the change on the physical level, chemical body level, didn't happen the way McLuhan did. But you have to know McLuhan was way ahead on the change factor and was right. And then you have to realize he knew why his words would be obsolesced. And you could even say, you know, the main book he, he was always translating, Finning's Wake, fits the, the mandate of what's going to happen next 300 years because language is going to be changing. Verbal language will change so much to do all this stuff, including going into silence and not speaking. Phineas Wake's garbled way of writing may be how human beings will talk in 200 years. So it's the best guide. It's the best guide to the changing in the media landscape, better than McLuhan, and McLuhan knew that. Don Thiel made it his academic point. <clears throat> Phineas Wake's a better guide because it has more open field of the changes that can happen to speech itself and what people would say. Well, it's almost because Joyce kind of threw in so many. He threw everything in the sink. Yeah, he threw. He knew to throw everything in there. That would be a beginning point because he knew radio subsumed all the knowledge systems in every culture. So then you come to this talk um, that he gave to the publishers in the spring of '69. I was listening to it the other day, and it's incredible. He says this is like the most important statement that McLuhan ever made as a subset to what he meant by the means of the message. He said, radio created depth criticism. Now, do you know what depth criticism is? Um, That's, it's, description? No, I, I have some probably synonyms, but no, I'm not sure what you mean by it. It refers to I.A. Richards and the Cambridge School of Literary Criticism called the New Criticism. It came out in the late 20s, early 30s. The new criticism. That was the technical term. And McClune was a professor uh, at Madison, Wisconsin, and then at St. Louis, one of the rare American, uh, Canadian-American professors teaching the new, in the English department, the new thing called new criticism. Now, another term for that is depth criticism. And Marshall says that radio created depth criticism. I.E. Richards 
or F.R. Levis, these kind of people that were teachers at Cambridge, they, if they had heard that back then, they would object <laughs> that their greatest thoughts were created by radio. They would not like what McClellan said. But what it means is depth criticism was a response by A. Richards and Levis to Pound's writing, Ezra Pound, T.S. Eliot, Ulysses, James Joyce, all the changes in the arts in the 20s. It was not a simple one plane, simple linear level of art that was being made. You know, just think of cubism. So the literary academics came up with the phrase new criticism, and they meant depth criticism. And you can see, uh, well, when Marshall says radio created that, that means that every new innovation in any art and science in the 23s was caused by radio. And that's the more important insight, not the particular pro cultural products that represented depth criticism, like Finnegan's Wake or The Wasteland or I.A. Richards' book, The Meaning of Meaning, any of these things. They were all knee-jerk responses to the hidden effect of radio. Now, that's a huge level of mind control that, uh, that George Orwell and um, Aldous Huxley are not dealing with. So that... McLuhan, McLuhan would say in 1970, McLuhanism and, uh, and uh, Castro, uh, Mao Zedong, Pierre Trudeau, rock and roll, the hippies, uh, um, women's lib, anything across the board were created by television. Sometimes you say television. Another time you might say the computer environment. Another time you might say the satellite global theater. The point is, is everything that humans were doing were being affected by the main medium they used. And Marshall didn't identify with the content that he addressed or that the, the Beatles or Trudeau, when he commented, he wasn't for them. He was saying, you guys are the way you are and are acceptable and popular because the dynamics of television make people think that that's what's good or effective. See, see, radio, in other words, um, let's say the computer created the uh, whole field of communication discipline and all the subsets you cited to us, you know, half an hour ago and all the media ecology departments. Neil Postman and Lance Strait were created by the global theater. That means they, they're, they're especially Neil Postman, his well, image. Communication discipline comes from the study of rhetoric and that we're, there used to be a communication departments used to be called speech communication departments, which used to be part of English departments, which became communication departments after <laughs> World War II, and there was lots of funding to sort of examine. The There's not one thing. Uh, I defy anybody to tell me any development in any field that I can't point out McLuhan said it first. And, and <laughs> oh, you I just totally did believe it. that. <laughs> no, no. Now listen to this. I can apply to what you just said. McLuhan wrote in the 40s, that dialectics in the old literate sense were gone, but rhetoric would come back. He said rhetoric and metaphysics, would, and literature would die, but poetry would survive. Yeah, it, and it is back. It has never left. Rhetoric has never left. No, so. but he, his PhD is about why rhetoric uh, became a figure after World War II and why it wasn't a figure before World War II. So McClune was a professor of rhetoric. So he happened to be an expert in the very thing that was going to be... <laughs> Beg your pardon? Federal government, because the study of it became a funded endeavor by the That's federal right. government. That's right. And McClure was pointing out that you guys are missing the new rhetoric caused by electronic media. The, the, the laws of rhetoric as applied to radio is what he's getting at when he says radio created depth criticism. See, the very thing you just said about English, that's literary, verbal, national culture stuff, 
being subsumed into the global village and the global theater as communication departments developing upgrading rhetoric, that very phenomenon he predicted. Because oh, he knew. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And uh, I mean, it's. Again, he's on the biggest level. McLuhan was engineering culture. The whole Egyptian, the whole Egyptian revolution, um, what's yeah. happening in the Middle East, is attributed to largely, you know, the achievement of social networking sites. That's right. Anybody nowadays, and a Facebook page uh, where all Khaled Saeed that was created by by this Google executive. Um, right. So, you see, you have to understand that back in the 1560s. When McLuhan said television was causing all these changes that people like Beehive hairdos, Elvis Presley, he said this is caused by television. You have to put yourself back into the detached state of mind that literate industrial people back in the 40s, 50s did not know the environment affected them. They thought TV was something you bring in a room and watch at night as an entertainment box. They didn't know it would change their economy and their lifestyle. So back then... People did not know, Westerners, and McLuhan wrote about did not know the environment affected them, especially the new technological environment. But by now, anybody can say the Internet caused this Egyptian uprising. So if it's a cliche that the medium is the message, where has the action gone? I say it's gone that nobody is affected by media anymore. That, that Facebook did not. Here's the way you do it. Facebook caused the Egyptian uprising. But the, up, the uprising didn't happen or didn't get anywhere so that's applicable in any physical body terms. It didn't really cause it, but it facilitated it. It talked about it. It was a meeting. Oh, no, it facilitated the, it. Yeah. The Egyptians had a radical, rave-like meeting, and, and the rest of the world, the other older media called it a revolution. But where did it lead to a new military bureaucratic control of the physical body, which does not control the chip the body. Democracy hasn't materialized. And it can't. You, that's why you can say, uh, you know, facetious things like the Egyptian uprising was a meeting by the people under the great influence of the Internet. And the Internet and Facebook said, we must get together and re reassert our Egyptian culture, our Egyptian words, our Egyptian writings. And it was called a revolution. So it was the a fund uh, irritant of the meeting uh, prompted a counter irritant in terms of the uh, protest in that. Yes, yeah, it was a counter meeting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or no, we've got we've got too much togetherness. Let's uh, establish a, a little bit of difference and uh, distance. That, that's what you, I, it sounds like you're saying that about our talk right now. But you mean for them, for Egypt? Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, when you just said we give too much to give, we better establish distance. I thought you were talking about our conversation right now. Well, yeah, I mean, totally, totally. Like, sooner or later, we, we're getting too much of an accord here. Sooner or later, we're going to have to uh, bust yeah. out to some disagreement. We're having too, way too much matching and agreement going on. Well, and you know how you do oh, that, no, no, Andrew? No, no, come on. Are you not listening to me? <laughs> I can always bring discord. I can try. <laughs> okay, but look at this way. That's verbal discord. The way you bring in discord is you bring in Hollywood and make a movie about it, or you bring in uh, Diane Sawyer, or you bring in Bill Gates with his uh, gift philanthropy. That's the other media that come in and alter whatever you're talking about. You see what I mean, um, Andrew? The counter-irritant is caused by other media environments and how they yeah. present what went on. So, um, just possibly to to throw us into a, um, a similar but different spiral, Bob. Like, um, I think you've really nicely laid out how I guess the uh, 
the same environment that promoted um, management, sustainability, design, anticipatory sustainable design, and yeah. uh, impulse for sustainability is also the same impulse that has uh, provoked wild paralysis by analysis. Yes, yeah. And so, so what's why then, and if we're all media ecologists, why then is the contemporary uh, green movement uh, missing these things? I didn't get the last words. Why is the green movement what? Yeah, the contemporary green uh, movements in, in their plurality missing the fact uh, that the... Because that's the old chemical body. Everybody's a media ecologist in terms of the TV landscape and having patterns and explanations about what's going on. That's what Web 2.0 is. You get on and make your interpretation of the TV information pattern. They're not concerned about the old chemical body environment, the world of Gaia or whales. That, that is said. That meme is recycled through the news every now and then, like the Gulf of Mexico situation, but it is not what people are making their commentary right now on. They're stated, you are the pattern you state on your website. That's how people assert themselves. As we've done many sessions you know, a few weeks ago, the point is there is no communication possible today in a matching sense. There's a lot of making going on, but it's got no possibility of matching. That's why meetings happen to check everybody's degree of disconnect within the non-matching meeting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to introduce these things at the next faculty meeting, which will also be my last. <laughs> I'll go out with a bang. If you introduce these things to a faculty meeting, you're guaranteed that it will be your last one. It's all, either that or you get promoted to CEO or something. Yes, you need to get promoted. <laughs> because no, that's a form of... No, let me graduate. You know, they're going to be like, yeah. you better get out of here before too <laughs> many well, people care about this. <laughs> that's right, because in that environment, you're giving the hidden ground, and in a way, the, the only way you can highlight the hidden ground is to turn it off. And by you saying what we're saying today, those new patterns, you say it, you've turned off their environment. You've exposed the hidden ground. You've turned it off. You can turn off the environments by saying something today in that context, in that faculty meeting. Are you, are you a member of the faculty? Uh, yeah, I'm actually on a one-year full-time contract this year. Right. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're in that bureaucratic level. Um, <laughs> re, re, yes, re I've actually experienced every every level of bureaucracy since I've been at Rutgers. Yes. Yeah. And um, and you know there are sociology studies that that's what people learn in in school is how to operate in a bureaucracy. That's what you're learning. That's the culture. <laughs> Bure bureaucracy is the culture everywhere, which is just the old visual space hierarchy that. Westerners, and especially North Americans, require for identity. Who's in charge? Who's the head of the meeting? And that's what you meant earlier when you said they're the ones really in power because they're expressing the dynamic of the culture more than the actual president or figurehead who's, who gives the, uh, the, the lecture, the, um, the, what do they call that at conventions? The uh, keynote. <laughs> The keynote. Obama gave the keynote over the global celebration of the disappearance of an image. Like, you know, there are millions of websites right now saying that Obama died in 2001, 2005. There's others saying there's no way Obama's dead. Every possible Obama? response. 
Oh, I sorry, Obama. Osama. Yeah, yeah, Osama. <laughs> okay. Well, you could apply to Obama. Um, there's people who believe that he's a robotoid. You know. They are recorded. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's exactly like fitting his wake. There's one news story. Fitting his wake is one news story. It's called the letter, but nobody can find out what its content is because the whole book is everybody interpreting the letter in different media. Movie, radio, television, and books. They're all screaming, yelling, you know, a new Tower of Babel over this one event. And so that's why McLuhan said E equals MC squared was not about visual space as science developed from Newton in the printing press. It was about the way people lived in the, under radio conditions. You take a news item, E, and you move it at the pass a speed of light. Now, actually, you might say mass. News item is M. Move it at the speed of light, which means just broadcast it on BBC in 1932. That, that's faster than the actual physical speed of light. It's instant, and it acquires E. What does E stand for? E equals MC squared. It acquires infinite mass or energy or whatever they say it is. But Marshall pointed out that any news item acquires infinite mass. So that's E equals MC squared. Even the, even the smallest piece of information uh, can acquire infinite mass. Because it could be retrieved later. That's where the undecidability of the quantum uncertainty is. You don't know what time it is because something may not get uh, you know, infinite mass today, but it could in 15 years. Undecidability of quantum uncertainty is definitely on the list of things that I'm going to use at that next faculty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't even decide how much uncertainty there is. <laughs> I'm taking notes as we speak, Bob. I'm going to have the quotable uh, Bob Dobbs uh, <laughs> East Coast. <laughs> well, this happened many times. I've been ripped off daily. <laughs> uh, there will be attribution, trust me. <laughs> oh, yes, alibi. Yes, I have I'm suffered sorry. accordingly. Yeah. <laughs> you hear that, Andrew? Hear the academic bureaucratic mind working here, determining their survivability within the committee meetings? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just turning into slang what is covered up by bureaucratic statement, right? Complicated by bureaucratic jargonistic statement. I'm making a cartoon out of it, which is what McLuhan said. He wrote cartoons about complex processes. But it was so new, they thought that what he said was too complex to understand. So you can say McLuhan made the most complex, incomprehensible cartoon ever made by man. <laughs> it took him decades to understand his cartoon. <laughs> so why don't we uh, see if anybody else wants to say something in response to Yana or what we're saying. Let's, let's get another voice. The problem is, Yana, they don't speak. <laughs> the committee, this is a committee meeting right here, and nobody will yeah, say anything. Sorry. I hope not to have alienated. No, you haven't. They, they are silent every week. Yes. Right, Andrew? Back me up on that. Yeah, yeah, no, it's uh, everybody uh, doesn't, doesn't want to actually speak. <laughs> it's a danger. It's like a... Witnessed some great participation from your special guests and others in the past. Uh, who, you, oh, you mean on our recordings? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yes. I but, uh, call in in person for no, that's right. You, Yana right now could be a little depressed because she's not evoking any dialogue from the spectators, right? Compared to Buzz Coaston, uh, uh, Dave Newfeld, um, George Thompson, Gerd Stern. Who else have we had? 
uh, Scott Taylor. But I find that what you're saying is one of the best things we've ever done because you're giving the bureaucratic language and the spe- super specialization and subsets and subdisciplines of the McLuhan effect. It's really very appropriate what you're yeah, saying. We've had a nice high-level uh, management uh, seminar here. <laughs> <laughs> so I like... Take that you have on what I'm saying, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no. Look, the uh, I'm the I'm the kid saying the emperor does have clothes on. <laughs> but the, here's the thing. And you're sticking I, to it, right? Yes. Uh, what is it? Uh, McLuhan quoted Reagan. I may be wrong, but I'm never in doubt. Yep. That's a di- that's a committee dynamic. So I I really welcome these jargonistic things you're quoting. Um, I like when you give an inventory of, well, there was this field, and then it got called this in the 50s, and then it got this other, somebody came in and called it this, and it changed. Give us, you're describing the 50 kinds of snow. McLuhan used to like to, to get, uh, quote, Ted Carpenter, who said that for, if we go up the Arctic, it's just white, blank snow. But an Eskimo can see 50 kinds of snow. Eskimo was the old term they used. You can see 50 kinds of committees or subjects in the communication field, and that you've oh, already given us a. Me. I promise. Big pardon? I said it's not just me. I promise. Oh, I know. It, it's uh, it's it's uh, any com- any respectable committee member can see 50 kinds of issues that are being discussed in the committee. <laughs> that why I'm irrelevant in that sense. I don't see the subtleties. Uh, oh, wait a minute. No, I won't say that. Someone, maybe some of these lurkers, they wouldn't be able to say what I'm saying because they just see the committee thing. But through McLuhan, I've got the tools through use over the last 40 years, the tools to analyze and swallow up the 50 kinds of snow to say, no, there's not 50 kinds of snow here. This is all hydrogen. Oh, <laughs> <It's still> H2O. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the... Uh, that's what McLuhan did. He took it to a, a broader box, a, a broader framework. But he knew that that's what people who read books you're, would think. You're, you're actually describing more of a climate, you know. Yes, yeah. It's not, I'm just saying, it's not 50 kinds you're, of snow. You're beyond snow. You're beyond snow. That's right. <laughs> yeah, the, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not limited to anthropology or the Eskimo life. They only see 50 kinds of snow. What do I see, Andrew? What am I trying to say? I see, or I see the TV network. They don't see the snow on the screen of Canadian Broadcasting. <laughs> the Eskimos did not see the snow on the TV station. <laughs> and they did just fine without it. No, they didn't. They all became alcoholics. You know that. <laughs> and the only thing that, they, that re- sort of uh, propped them up was the tourism industry and the Eskimo crafts. That saved that culture. They started selling their old obsolete artifacts to people in the big cities. And, and you're blaming the absence of, uh, of TV on that? Uh, I'm, yes. I'm, no, I'm blaming the fact that television, the, even though they didn't have TV, let's assume at some point in the 50s, they did not have television in the Arctic because they hadn't brought that amount of industry in yet. They did not have television. They, the Eskimos didn't know that they were going to be affected by the television snow. You know, that's a joke about black and white TV. In the 50s, the low reception was called snow. Do you remember that? Or was that before your time? Yeah, no, I think um, it's fairly uh, commonplace, uh, Bob, that one. Yeah, the, okay. In Russian, that's the same word for the black and white 
static on the TV. Right, right. So I just walked myself. I made a huge breakthrough, which is what McLuhan used to do all the time. He'd talk himself into a breakthrough. The, I've cited the 50 kinds of snow as that's the, uh, the ground for uh, a Westerner when they go north. They don't see the 50 kinds. But I just realized that the Eskimo never saw the snow on the TV screen and its effects. There were, there were 100 kinds of snow. Because I'd, I'd make this, the TV screen as another 50 kinds of snow. Well, can I just say something to that about the snow? No, Sorry, you can't. No, we're engineering culture here. That's, that's inappropriate. <laughs> no. no, go ahead. I, I will. I will disrupt the fabric. Yeah, okay. Um, I'm just remembering some uh, piece of uh, conversation analysis, a scholarly article. And um, unfortunately, I don't remember the author, but I distinctly remember in the Salinti footnote. There was a discussion of how it's a common mis misperception that people have that, you know, Eskimos have 50 words for snow because for them, those are all different words that don't mean snow. Right. They actually no. have one word that means snow, and then there are other words that mean other things. So they perceive snow as being different things in the way that we cannot. And no, you're right. And so this is a good example of what we call the knowledge explosion because we experience more than what the verbal environment communicates with the new post-verbal environments, then verbality and writing articles becomes an art form. And because it doesn't really affect anything, you can take any point of view and notice a counter pattern to whatever anybody says. And the, the poetic sensibility of a Joyce or a Pound and Elliot 100 years ago is very common among reasonably educated people today. They actually see the complementary, the give and take in a, in a verbal landscape. So that means there's going to be lots of articles written about the 50 kinds of snow statement, some pro what you just said or correcting it. That is the root of, that creates a lot of wealth or translation into older media that engages older people. Research program. Yeah, research programs and creates jobs, temporary jobs, but at least a bit of cash flow. The, the very arguing over the issues is what information environment means, the information highway, but is not the ground. The ground is there is no connecting. And that was not apparent till the fall of 2008, where the banks cannot uh, make loans to each other anymore because they realized the whole hidden ground of no connections was right there. It finally became visible. So meanwhile, there are people arguing over statements and writing articles about it, and making YouTubes. Everybody is correcting everybody. So you got everybody is part of the communication ecology, which was the name of the book that uh, McLuhan pointed out. So uh, the name of the book that Barry Nevitt, McLuhan's associate, wrote. So what if I went into your meeting to say to them that everything is being looked after by the whole populations interacting on communication levels of different media, that they don't need to have their institution anymore. That would upset them. <laughs> to be told that their institution is way more successful than they could ever manage. That what they're trying to define under the, you know, the rubric of communication discipline is happening in the population. But I don't think people would um, argue against that. Oh, but I think they would think there were still a lot of problems that haven't been solved yet. Oh, well, of course. And those problems are the tension caused by the chip landscape. Well, every, every problem is an opportunity for redesign. <laughs> That's right. That's it. Yes. Yeah, there you go. 
See, what that article, Seed Magazine, was saying, hey, the buzzword design will allow you to get a lot of grants and other opportunities to, to use for the next six months. They're saying, use that word and you'll get some cash. Yep. Good advice. So you can't design. So McClellan would come in and would say, I always remember this psychiatrist on CBC he, about 1970. He said, I was at a panel with McClellan, and this is a therapist speaking, and he says, McClellan was outrageous. He said the goal was not to communicate. Now, you have to realize in 1970, the middle classes were just starting to get pressures in their jobs, and uh, in their, yeah, their jobs, in their corporations, to have to start socializing and communicating and having meetings about how they're doing in their meetings. That whole thing took over in the 70s. And McLuhan start, inaugurates by saying the goal is not to communicate. But he couldn't stop the fact that communication would become a big issue within the departments and all kinds of new uh, de- um, public relations uh, roles were created. Corporations had to deal with the accusations they were polluting more and more in the 70s. So here, so the update of McLuhan coming and saying the goal is not to communicate, nobody would agree with that, but he was accurate, it was correct for the hidden ground. So today, one would say uh, to what would be an outrageous statement like McLuhan would make that you could say today? Anybody in the audience got any suggestions? What would be an obs- a outrageous pattern to point out? Uh, we could talk about Mark Stellman's uh, recent uh, tetrad. Well, there's nothing to discuss there. It's so silly, but I will let you you go ahead and discuss it. <laughs> With that introduction? Yeah. <laughs> I recognize the ecology of yes. Go, okay, Andrew, you brought it up. You started. Well, I was uh, intrigued to find out. Um, uh, one second, I've just got to switch. Mark Stallman is, for the listeners, he's going to lead a seminar in Manitoba at some, I think the University of Manitoba, is it the religious department? Uh, Yeah, he's off to do a uh, talk called Surfing the Divine. McLuhan looks at religion um, at, McLuhan looks at religion, looks at McLuhan Saturday on May the 7th. And uh, um, And now Mark... Well, it's interesting. Is Eric McClune going to be part of the panel? The way it's written, like it's an all-day thing, and I don't know if they all speak at the same time with each other in the same panel. Did you, can you figure that out? Yeah, I believe so. So there's 10 contributors from around the world, including uh, a few people that I uh, don't know, including uh, Nora Young, um, Patrick Lenin. But Nora uh, Young is a, CB, is a radio personality or CBC, something yeah, to host, do with... Yeah, host of uh, CBC's uh, Radio Sparks. Patrick uh, Lenin, who invented the mobile app called iConfession. Uh, Padre Mario uh, Goulin, I think, a, K- a Canadian Air Force chaplain, and Eric McLuhan. And, but the interesting that uh, Mark is billed as the uh, keynote for this thing. Yeah, and so Mark proposes that he has come up with a tetrad about Mark McLuhan himself that no one has ever done, well, no one's ever done a tetra. Well, I've done many tetras in McLuhan, and one of them is published in uh, the booklet for Bob's Ecology in 92. But let's go with uh, what you want to say about his tetrad. Well, um, maybe this is uh, irrelevant, maybe it's irrelevant. You know, I thought it was uh, quite a nice little way of uh, introducing and uh, gaining... Two levels there, Andrew. When you ask whether it's relevant or not, 
it's it's totally relevant because you come up with new words for us to talk about. That's the hidden ground. Keep the content going. So what, no matter what you say, it's relevant. But whether it's relevant to the particular themes we discussed is another matter. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's several levels here. Yeah, yep. i am uh, definitely got my uh, journalist wearing my uh, underpants on the outside today. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but you're doing a good job tweeting. Yep. It's... Uh, Anyway, okay, so uh, apparently uh, Mark asks, has anybody done a tetrad on McLuhan? Because clearly nobody has. And then he moves through, and he, so he puts in the obsolete, he's actually got obsolete, not obsolescence quadrant, the modern. So McLuhan obsolesces the modern, thus his success among the postmoderns and his study of the moderns, such as Joyce, Elliot, Lewis, and Pound, to Gary uh, Gnosko, et al. He's got McLuhan retrieves the medieval. Uh, wherefore, his PhD thesis on medieval philosophy and his uh, Christmas card should old Aquinas be forgot. Q. Etienne Gilson um, and Jacques Maritain. He enhances mankind, what happens when we all understand media and become informed. So uh, possibly he's uh, dredging up this idea that we do become all media ecologists. So the information of mankind, i.e. the medieval meaning of the word, Q. McLuhan, Marshall, and Eric, also Chesterton and Bullock. And he's got flips into New Catholic Church, therefore a renaissance of prayer formerly caused by the internet. Q. Pierre Babin and his student uh, Richard uh, Osiki? Osiki, yeah. Yeah, so well, well, I put in the normal order, enhances mankind, obsolesces the modern, retrieves the medieval, flips into the New Catholic Church. And so he uses this as his uh, foundation to say that he's going to be on uh, in Winnipeg uh, facilitating um, this talk. Now, I've got five years of talk on this topic, but uh, let's see. Um, Yana, what, what do you make of this? You know, you're not... You know, uh, do you even know what the tetrad is, Yana? Um, yeah, it's uh, something like it's a media theory about the four four aspects of four laws. Yeah. Yeah. The four aspects, which are enhancement, obsolescence, retrieve, and and reversal. So you know that much. It's so represented as a quadrant, and you can sort of identify. It becomes quadrant if you bring my terminology into it, but normally people don't say, well, yeah, there is a quadrant in the design of it, right, Andrew? It's a circle with the X and Y axis, and yeah, there's four spaces in a circle. Okay, that's a quadrant. Yeah, I'm I just think- remember it's visual representation where you're supposed to actually write in these things for, uh, for every medium. No, wait, say it again. Visual representation of what? Of the tetrad. Well, the tet- are you saying the tetrad is visual representation of the tetrad? Or the quadrant, the quadrant image. The the quadrant image. Yes. Yeah, you're right. Okay. I'm so used to using the term quadrants for my stuff that I forgot that, yes, you could look at that as quadrants. So what you've heard, uh, McLuhan enhances uh, mankind in the the medieval meaning of the information, the informing of mankind. It obsolesces, um, McLuhan himself obsolesces the modern. He retrieves the medieval and flips into the New Catholic Church. Now, this is really sloppy, stupid thinking, all right? It's not even worth discussing, but I'm willing to go into it, but let's have other people talk about it. What do you make of that? Does, does McLuhan obsolesce modernism to you, Yana? Uh, no. No. It's obvious, and there's lots to say. Uh, does he retrieve the medieval? 
Probably. <laughs> what was the last word? Probably. No, he doesn't. Re- he retrieves the future. It would be difficult for somebody who's not read everything. I understand that you would say that, but um, um, you know, inevitably, his thought was based on other thoughts um, expressed before. And just as you're saying, everything that he, you know, everything that's done now is something that he has said. In similar fashion, you can probably look at a lot of things that he had said that had been said before him. Right. McLuhan enhances committee meetings. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm just trying to give him a little bit more credit by saying that, yes, sure, he probably (laughs) ended up on the medieval... um, well, here, here's what's well, wrong with this. To the level of the modern, but you can go ahead and tell me why I'm wrong. Yeah, now, Mark sent this out to me and Andrew and a few other people because he says, um, he says, uh, it'll be his job at the end of the day to summarize the events. So suggestions are very welcome. Now, I don't want to help his case. Um, I'm going to say a lot of stuff that will destroy his tetrad, but it'll be useful to him to know what the argument is and he'll be able to defend himself. So I'm doing him a big favor even commenting on this before it happens. I shouldn't. But the big mistake is he's taking Marsh McLuhan's chemical body and what he's heard by rumor that chemical body did. Wrote a PhD, went to mass every day, read Finnegan's Wake. You take that, that is not McLuhan. McLuhan recognized he had a new environment, a new body, a new landscape, the discarnate. And that is what is McLuhan, the new environment that McLuhan's chemical body was forced to adapt to. So all of McLuhan's writings are autobiographical because they're describing the effect of the electronic body on a chemical body person. And that's why he is the poet of this new environment because he described the symptoms and the issues uh, under the cover that it was some sociological detached view of what was going on in the global theater, but he was describing his own response, which became everybody's response because everybody was affected by the electronic theater. That's what you do a tetrad on, not on the chemical body. So this is disgusting, and uh, that's all I'm going to say for a moment, Andrew. You say something, or anybody say something. Yeah, no, I'll interject in a second. Um, just I'm waiting for a document to open so I can get something. But uh, on this idea of uh, McLuhan uh, commenting on the autobiogra- autobiographical, um, I, um, I've i frequently um, discussed this with uh, uh, Mark, and, and, and Mark tends to disagree, but this idea that the artist is uh, reflecting on uh, his or her own processes. Yes, and but so, so McLuhan's uh, practice is completely consistent with his uh, description of, uh, I guess, the updated processes of the avant-garde of 20th century art, in some respect. Right. Could you say that sentence again? That, well, that was good. He is totally what? With what? His, like, his, his practice, in a sense, is entirely consistent with the uh, processes and patterns of thought of the most avant-garde figures in 20th century uh, art. Right. So he's constantly uh, um, deconstructing himself, in a way. I think my That's right. could be used better there. Right. When he says ra- radio created depth criticism, he's commenting on how, as a young man in the 20s at Cambridge, he was fascinated by new criticism, became a professor in it, 
then recognized for the late 40s it's inadequacy to deal with the new, at least North American media environment. And so he's looking back, he's saying, when I lived, when I was young and radio was the ground before television, all my interests were modulated by the radio environment. That's an autobiographical statement. For him, radio created depth criticism. But he found out later that radio was, when he found out that radio and understood that radio was the hidden ground, was his unconscious. That's the update of Freud and Young and everybody else, um, Foucault, uh, who can, uh, forget the other guys, um, Deleuze and Guattari. McClure is giving a more accurate statement of what his unconscious is. In the 20s, 30s, his unconscious was radio. And now, in the 60s, he can point that out. But he's pointing out the new unconscious for him, which is television and global theater. And then all the books that come out in the late 60s are about that. The, um, the point is that you say he's consistent with the most of avant-garde processes, but none of them said that this whole 20th century was created by, and you go through movie, automobile, radio, television, computer, satellite. He named what caused the 20th century, what its main where its main features came from. That's the level of detachment that's going on here. Yeah, well, I, that, think I've, I've, I found the document that I think um, that I wanted to talk to. It was um, a note that I found that, um, that it took a while to uh, reflect on. It's just uh, a simple uh, 10 points. And it, it says the first one, the artist in any age is the first and final clue to uh, these processes. And he's got impractive cognitive. The artist is engaged in a perpetual discovery and criticism of his own processes of cognition. Um, the artist retraces these processes in order to disassociate them from all alien admixture. By isolating and projecting externally in objects his own processes of awareness, he achieves style. The cognitive process raised to critical self-awareness is the creative process of any field. It is, this, it is for this reason that all modern discovery naturally appears as a branch of aesthetics. So creation in the arts and sciences is the process of retracing the stages of apparition apprehension which have resulted in insight. The artist of every age provides first and final clues to the process of reconstruction since he is typically engaged at the centre of the network of his milieu. Um, by isolating and externalising his inner drama and carefully rendered objects and situations, he offers the rested means of contemplating uh, contemplation to his time, an indispensable way of clarifying ordinary imprecision and confusion of endless crowd messages circulating in the social network. And finally, by current extensions of self-awareness of the techniques of apprehension and communication, make practical a re-amalgamergence of the domains of time and space, knowledge and power. Right, now that was written in, in the late 40s, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, what I would say is that uh, is what he's saying in the 40s, that's under the influence of radio when he still thinks he has a body, so to speak. None yeah. of that applies to the later McLuhan. I would put in, instead of artists, committee meetings. Put in yeah, yeah. the word committee meetings. You can substitute, substitute out uh, art how it's normally meant. I was meaning art in the sense of how it refers to McLuhan and McLuhan's own practice. Right, and, and it certainly cannot be recognized in any traditional ideas of what the artist is. Yes. You re read the first sentence and put in the word um, committee meeting in, for artist. <laughs> now do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Avant-garde sure. committee meeting. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the committee meeting is engaged in a perpetual discovery and criticism of its own processes of cognition. Bingo. Do you see yep. it? 
yeah, the, the committee meeting retraces these processes in order <laughs> to disassociate them from all alien <laughs> admixture. What? what? Know, I, there was a similar essay I just read last week that actually used the word designer and designing instead of committee meeting. <laughs> there you go. Design is a new word for the ongoing process of committee meetings. And I want to say this, Andrew. When I think of it, when he commented on management, he hardly ever did, other than it was obsolete or it was an ear man trying to deal with the eye world or vice versa. The really pointed remarks were, you'll get stuck in meetings all day long. You can't get to the guys in the committee because uh, through the phone. He, he satirized committee meetings. And he actually says that uh, we're no, he would criticize the John Birchers and those who thought there was a trilateral commission or Rockefeller running the show. He says Rockefeller and, and the rich elites don't run it. Committees. It's governed by committee. We've actually gone into hardware communism. We'd gone Soviet, so to speak. So he actually, do you remember that, Andrew? I forgot it. He no, actually no, said we moved Xerox, he said, created government by committee. Yep. I, so I the committee I, is the main effect. Remember something else, Bob, that um, I believe that McLuhan and uh, Tom Easterbrook, or at least particularly Tom Easterbrook, used to write um, uh, management pieces by taking pieces, I think, out of uh, biology or something and just yeah. substituting words in, just like we did with, uh, with uh, yes. the committee and artists. So, um, yeah, so it's a fairly McLuhan-esque uh, procedure in that sense. Yeah, Tom Estabrookiana was a, a, a boyhood friend of McLuhan in, in Manitoba, and McLuhan says that when... Astorbrook gave McLuhan a book on Chesterton that led to McLuhan's conversion to Catholicism. I don't think it was it's limited to that, but that's the the, the popular anecdote that Estorbrook had a very early influence on McLuhan because they went to a bookstore or a library and McLuhan took a book out on economics and Estorbrook took out the Ch- Chesterton book and then they were both looking at it and es- and Estorbrook after says, wait a minute. I don't want to read about Chesson. I'd rather read economics. And he would eventually become a professor of political economy. And so they swapped books. And McLuhan made Chesson you know, a big ground in his thinking in the 30s and 40s. But the book was given to a Tom, and the book that Marshall gave to Tom formed uh, Tom's future profession. So that was the, the seed of that. <laughs> but, and then Esther Book becomes a, a, committee, a committee member. The Explorations Group was a committee. And uh, they claim they're exploring interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary studies. Uh, Estabrook was a member of that and probably had, would have, he's not alive today, but he would have incredible stories to talk about McLuhan. Though you notice what's interesting in Don Thiel's book when you have Ted Carpenter's addendum, uh, Ted Carpenter complains that uh, at McLuhan's funeral he got to see Tom Estabrook, old buddies from 30 years before, at least in terms of the exploration committee, and they complained about how the uh, McLuhan family kept Tom and Ted Carpenter away from McLuhan. You know, that, that McLuhan in his later lives missed his opportunity to stay in touch with Estabrook and his old buddies. Yep. So that's just a note that Ted Carpenter says at the end. So, um, and the rest of us, I don't know anybody who interviewed Tom Estabrook. Did you? Do you, Andrew? Uh, no, no, untouched. I think he died in the 80s, so that's in the, when no one cared about McClellan, so it wasn't around. Nobody was going to do it. So, um, so the, the artist is no longer... I mean, the first essay McClellan writes after the atomic bomb in 1945-46 called The Southern Quality. I quoted him our, our first mom meeting. He talks about the, the one who's going to be a f- most 
pissed off about the corporate effect globally of the atomic bomb was the artist. And the artist in all fields was going to have the biggest identity crisis. And now you have celebrity uh, TMZ, you have nothing but 24-7, some you know, quantum celebrity having a breakdown. That's what they cover, 24-7. Every, it's the popular version of, of the breakdown of Ernest Hemingway or of Elliot or of Pound, you know, back in the 30s and 40s. Now is, everybody's doing it if they get some kind of coverage and are considered a celebrity. But that syndrome, the artist, the creative impulse would be superseded by the creativity caused by the global theater itself, which I later call the Android meme. So all those things that Andrew laid out there are the processes that the corporate environment does and takes over. And McLuhan says in 1968 in War and Peace and Global Village that the environment becomes a living organism. He has it right there, acting out the, dynam the dynamics that Andrew just inventoried. So it's perfectly right. It's more appropriate to put the committee meeting in there than the word artist for the later McLuhan. Or designer. Or designer, yes. That, um, let's say, uh, how could you, the designer, um, the texter, put in the texter, read the texter. I bet you the, te you know, the texting every day about what you, how many bowel movements you had and all that stuff. Do read a few of those. Say item four, five, and six with the word texter instead of the artist, Andrew. Is it the texter, or are we looking at the audience, sort of like as in the uh, audience is the formal cause for design? Well, let's put in texter then, okay? So yeah, the, the audience and the performer have merged. Mar Marshall said that in 1980. In, he said in sports, the audience and the athlete will merge, and that happened with the jumbo screen. Well, okay. in design theory, the idea is that the users of design are contribute to the instantiation of design. That's what McLuhan called the producer-consumer input, producer-consumer, yes. And that very thing that you just said is what he predicted, that the audience would take over. Or, or management committees would run out of ideas by 1975 with bullshit that they could say, and they would start doing focus groups and bringing in people and claiming the audience was part of the design just so they could include their input or their reactions. That is just like Joyce writes Ulysses, you know, the greatest novel Time Magazine votes, and then he, what, how's he going to top that? He writes a book which involves everybody. He lets everybody jump in, and the theme is, here comes everybody, which turned, which turned out to mime what was going to happen with electronic and digital culture. Everybody gets in on the world of expression. So well, read, read. Reality shows, Bob, those reality shows do the same thing. They use the audience as a judge. Yeah. All now, those reality shows. Yeah. yeah, now, Carol, I say that's the Android meme from, say, 1980 to now is the Android meme replaying these processes. It's not even done by humans anymore. It's the Android meme imitating what happened to humans from 1850 to 1960. And what, so you could put in the Android meme does that, but, but just put in this Texter, which is the latest involvement. Right. Remember, okay. uh, I'm going to say this, Carol, the hyper-involvement, the electric media would bring in, McLuhan says, electric interval demands response. That is the main big bird's eye view of, of the main feature of the 20th century that McLuhan was describing as a, quote, scientist, sociologist, artist, writer, novelist, science fictioner, human being, citizen, uh, English teacher, and physicist. You know, that's the, he, he definitely did the E equals MC squared of the second half of the 20th century. 
describing what he called the participation mystique. So texting is the, is the individual regaining control over the Android meme. So what, what do they do, Andrew? Okay, so the, uh, so the audience producer merger, henceforth referred to as the texter, um, retraces these processes in order to disassociate them from alien admixture. The texter, by isolating and projecting externally in objects, his or her own process of awareness achieves style. Um, blah, 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 blah. That works. That to me, that's what the cliche way of uh, describing textures is. They get on there 24/7 describing uh, what they're doing when they're shopping. They're analyzing every little thing their chemical body does. They've got their chemical body on surveillance, and they they think there's an audience for that. Yep. The cognitive process of the uh, audience producer merger or the texter raised to critical self-awareness is the creative process in any field. Ah, that that's a mean fodder for any committee meeting. Yep. <laughs> and we're uh, doing that here today. We are taking the fodder of our daily experience in this level we're talking about and using it as content for our meeting here. Here's a bit of a curly one, though, possibly. Um, it, is this, it is for this reason that all modern discovery naturally appears as a branch of aesthetics. Yes, that's design. That's what design means, aesthetics. Making it more comfortable. So people are texting and design and to the intent of making the design of their life be more appropriate or the expression of the design of it. That's aesthetics, wouldn't you say, Yana? Uh, well, that's part of it, but the way when we look at communication design, you're actually looking at how interactions are designed, and sometimes those are not um, instrumental decisions. Um, that's right, yeah. They're trying to point out that there's a hidden ground. It's completely irrelevant or that's oblivious to its own purposes or that simply is not functional. That's right. That's in McClellan in Newsweek magazine in 1966, he said, Madison Avenue could not condition a mouse. Now that's right when people on the popular culture level thought they were being conditioned. He announces in the analog media phase that there's no conditioning happening. You, the, the design is not having any effect on the four bodies, only maybe on one-fourth of them. But you're, you, what you said there is an acknowledgement that there's some factors hidden here that are not obvious, that are influencing or not influencing the user. Yes. Yeah. As long as I get a yes from you, we can go forward. <laughs> That's another thing. The second time in this conversation. <laughs> yes. Well, McLuhan, here's a committee statement. Uh, he says, uh, how does it go? Um, I, love the, I love the way he nods. He really communicates. Remember that, Andrew? How does that go in culture? <laughs> that, that's a committee. Someone who's lived in a lot of committees knows how the committee members nod, and that's real communication. <laughs> so you're... Your yes is a kind of a nod. Yeah, it's the one that's really communicating. Yeah, it's the key. It's the key gesture. I say a bunch of words for five minutes. Your nod determines where it goes next to a great degree. If you say no, then I got to restate it all. If you nod yes, then I can go up with another idea or have someone else say something. It's it's the traffic light, the nod. <laughs> You know, I love your perspective that a no would mean that you have to restate. Something. Yeah. <laughs> You'd have to come up with some There's more content. No implication. <laughs> oh, 
I love that. Yeah, that's why it, when you present this stuff at your faculty meeting, the dramatic point will be when you finish and you look at them and see how they nod in response. Yes. <laughs> That'll be the atomic bomb. Yeah, that's right. Now that reminds me, McLuhan made a real good point about NASA, how they didn't know how to popularize what was going on when they had their space flights. He said they should, they should have the, uh, the astronauts outside the capsule floating around, you know, fixing the out part of the satellite or the rocket or whatever, the space station. And he says, yeah, what would you say? Tweeting about it. Ah, no, the tweeting. This is back in 73. He said that NASA should have shown... Yeah, no, it's all right. But here's the early version. He said NASA shouldn't have had footage of a guy dancing around on the moon, just a body image, uh, some black and white, you know, blurred snow image. He said they should have showed the meters at NASA that showed how much oxygen was going through the tube into a suit and how much nitrogen and all the different chemical components and how they had to be stabilized. And so the audience would be dramatic, get very dramatically involved watching the meters because if the meter went up, just like in a Hollywood movie, uh-oh, the guy's oxygen is going to cut off. He's going to die. You know, that the meter goes down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, the meter, when that went down, that was a big thing. Now, um... And I think I'm right to say that was June 25th, 1997, because a lot happened in my life on that day. So I thought that that was miming my life, okay? June 25th, 1997, I think is when Mir crashed or when they talked about it. But the, uh, the, the drama of watching uh, the, the hot media and the cool media, cold media on the astronaut is, how, um, is what happens in committee meetings with the nod. See, so you say your bit, and then the nods, and the responses are the gradation of the drama that's either going to be uh, cool or heated. Well, partly, Bob, possibly what's happening uh, with uh, that is a, it's a transposition of the uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, love for discussing the weather, transposing it onto the individual chemical body. I mean, as soon as you've got those spaceships up there, uh, conventional nature, conventional weather is obsolete, so, but you've still got that same uh, impulse, desire, or drive to discuss weather, so um, talking that's about a new, the flow and flux of chemicals is the new weather. That's the new cyborgian weather, right. The, now, McLuhan, it's interesting how he comments. He, he talks about, he has a couple of st- uh, comments on the weatherman on the early TV shows, and uh, I can't remember anything in particular, but I know that he considered himself a, you know, quote, cosmic weatherman or overarching super weatherman, and that's why he called his media hot and cold. And, and he used rim spins and weather, weather broadcast uh, terminology. Yeah, and he would say, well, we got a cold. He even says, bless Expo for putting up a cold front against the U.S. Uh, reality. You remember that? Remember? Yeah, 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 yeah. Bless Expo for doing a cold front. So he, the weather metaphor is all through McLuhan, and that's why he said, I'm just observing. I don't have a point of view. I'm just describing what's going on, like a, like a cyborgian weatherman. That is a key part of McLuhan's satire, that he took the phenomenon of the local weatherman and the local TV station and made it an archetypal, cliche weatherman, made it archetypal by involving all of the big questions that came through humanist culture. Is that something that, um, just to go right back to... Uh I guess his boyhood experiences. Is this something that people talk about in the Canadian prairies? Is the is the weather a big uh, topic there? I've never been. I don't, I don't know what what the situation is there. No, I don't know either. But the the thing is, is that don't all cultures 
talk about weather. Well, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know whether they fetishize it in the same way as uh, those people um, of uh, English-speaking uh, countries. I mean, the, the English, that's all they talk about is the weather. Oh, okay. So in, you, Africa, how, in Africa, there are a um, number of countries. And some, there's uh, this author, I think she's a Kenyan author, uh, Kamamanda Odichi, and she actually listened to a talk of hers, and she specifically said that when she was growing up, and since it was a British colony, she was she would read British children's books where all they did was eat apples and talk about the weather. And uh, uh, she she then became an author, but in her books, children would eat apples and talk about the weather, even though that was never her own experience, because the weather was always beautiful, and they never discussed <laughs> apples don't grow there. That, 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 so you're saying the book described what wasn't her experience, but it, the book considered it normal. Um, yeah, it was a side. It was a side story. She was basically saying how she was influenced by British literature so much, and she, um, you know, she just became part of who she was, even though in her own environment, people never talked about the weather. So she was making a larger point. Um, right. Okay. This weather point is really a key to McLuhan's satire. Uh, which principles you can look up in the Ph.D. Uh, on Manitoba uh, that he wrote in the uh, what is it? I won't I won't bring it up right now. Um, is the one he did in the 30s. Uh, but you know the key phrase in McLuhan in his early criticism was phatic communion. P h a t i c. Have you done the Jacobson? He's the one who's sort of considered the discussant of phatic communication. Do you ever have that in your linguistics courses? Yeah. So, yeah, well, sure. yeah. yeah, phatic is known through the six types of uh, speech outlined in an essay by Jacobson in about 1956 or something. But what's not so well known is um, is the book The Meaning of Meaning by one of these uh, depth critics, uh, I.A. Richards. Richards. Yep. Yeah, and, and they have an essay by Malinowski where he coins the phrase phatic communion based on his analysis of uh, native groups in the Pacific Ocean. Right. Might have even been the Trobian Islanders, though I'm not sure. Uh, yeah. So it was about how the talk about the objects in the environment was cohesive to the tribe. It held the tribe together. And that was odd to a litter person who thought that talk had to have a meaning, a point. <laughs> you know, uh, a lot of uh, Western culture is criticizing people just from talking aimlessly. But, yeah, but, that meeting went nowhere, Bob. That's a terrible thing for a meeting to do. To just yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna have to have another meeting. <laughs> and that's yeah, what Malinowski McClure. did a great job with that. And then uh, there's another piece. Uh, oh, you uh, actually know about Malinowski? Well, we can get some real good oh, stuff here now. I love <laughs> Malinowski. You know, I actually first just randomly read uh, there are these two books that are his letters to his wife, Elsa. And uh, they had a really fascinating relationship because they met, and then shortly after they got married, they basically uh, lived apart most of their lives, and they conducted their relationship through letters. This and is amazing. I know, I know nothing. You're the first person I ever met who knew stuff about Malinowski. Uh, this, this is worth getting on the record, Andrew, because let me just say this. The term fatic communion is a big deal in McLuhan's work. And, you know, he, he got it from reading I.A. Richards, his professor's book, The Meaning of Meaning, which had a big influence on Marcel Duchamp in 1923 and James Joyce. This is a key factor. And fat, one aspect of Fatic Communion is the nodding and talking about the weather. So 
Uh, it's like McLuhan's writings are taking the cliche of time with the weather and archetypalizing it. it. When I read his note on Understand Media, he said he was this book archetypalizes speech. Well, he didn't tell you the content of it was weather talk. <laughs> <laughs> so let's. This is really important. So tell us about Malinowski. You've already started, but continue. I mean, well, I don't. There's a lot that can be said. I mean, he was great, and. Uh, well, what did you like about his writing? Well, you say you liked what he wrote. Well, I mean, this, his whole approach to uh, participant observation, and so in a number of works, he sort of described what you know participant observation is and. Participant observation. No. <laughs> That's so McLuhan-esque. He said the artist is both you know uh, involved and detached. Not that the phrase participant observation means that in your context, but I can make those two words mean that. Well, he talked about, so he was one of the pioneers of, of the idea of basically how to systematically observe, observe a culture. So he kind of took the field of anthropology to a new level by largely providing this kind of systematic order and defining different types of observation that one can do. So he was himself into participant observation, which I've personally... Uh, conducted and done some for my dissertation research, and I think it's really interesting. Um, but he, um, so he he has this great piece about talking um, about how to keep uh, field notes, and uh, so I liked his, you know, I liked his personality. I love his personal uh, his personal narrative about his life. I like his relationship with his wife. Um, well, you, when, when, where did he come from? Was he an aristocrat? Was he a coal miner's daughter? What? He was who? Polish. Um, no, he was oh. Polish. I think he he, uh, he was born in Krakow. Um, I think. Yeah. And he was uh, upper middle class family. If memory serves me right, and uh, so his father was a professor, and um, mother was um, from family of landowners. All right, so he had a hyper-literate uh, background and also a privileged background, probably. Sure. Yeah, which was really the only way back then. So he was born in the late 1880s. Right. Early, I can look it up 18, in the Wikipedia in a minute. Yeah, 1880-something. And uh, so at, at that time, I mean, he chose a... Um, he got a PhD in philosophy. Um, in uh, Poland? Uh, was in... Um, well, he got he got a PhD in philosophy. I don't remember from where, and also uh, pretty sure another PhD from the London School of Economics. So okay, so he ends up over you know outside of Poland. Um, he was born in 1884, a couple of years after James Joyce and uh, Stravinsky and Wyndham Lewis. He dies in 1942, around the same time as Joyce. Joyce dies in 1940. Now. This is a great thing about Wikipedia. I've never seen a picture of him. I've never gone to Wikipedia Malinowski ever, even though I've thought about him for 40 years. And here's a picture of him. Let's see what he looks like. He's a nice-looking guy. He looks looks like a subgenius. He's a good-looking guy. What? His, his wife was a good-looking woman. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, yeah. For some reason, I thought he was an overweight guy or something or a stodgy guy. Okay, so he ends up going. Been, you know, he lived with the, he lived in the Trobrian Islands for for so long, and you know there was like mass famine there. Um, <laughs> you know, since he did participate in observation, he actually participated in the lives of the people. And then at some point, and I think this is a little known fact because it's 
from some obscure like PDF of a diary entry somewhere. But um, at some point, so he discusses the um, the danger of going native when you're conducting participant observation, and so becoming so much part of a community that you can no longer disassociate yourself from. Yeah. You know, sort of take. You get too involved. You get yeah, too you get involved. Too involved. And so at some point, even though he was already married, he uh, was actually kind of invited to participate in the marriage ritual. And um, so he has seriously considered it, and there's some speculation as to whether he actually went through with it in order to, you know, gain more access right. to the interaction with this community. But there's some great correspondence that he had about the matter with his wife, and she was actually very supportive of him going in other words, he was he was offered a wife. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It it says here, interesting, I've never read these details. The Wikipedia uh, says in 1914 he traveled to Papua, which is where um, Ted Carpenter goes in 1969, to Papua in what would later become Papua New Guinea, where he conducted fieldwork at Meilu Island and then more famously in the Trobriand Islands. On his most famous trip to the area, he became stranded owing to the outbreak of World War I. He was not allowed to return to Europe from the British-controlled region because he was a Pole from Austria-Hungary. Australian authorities gave him two options, he, to be exiled to the Trobian Islands or to face internment for the duration of the war. He chose the Trobian Islands. It was during this period that he conducted his fieldwork on the Kula Ring and advanced the practice of participant observation, which remains the hallmark of ethnographic research today. Now look at this. By 1922, the uh, Annus Mirabilis, as Hugh Kenner calls it, the miracle year, he had earned a doctorate of science and anthropology and was teaching at the London School of Economics. That's how he would have met I.A. Richards, because they added, yeah, he, they added his addendum uh, to their book, uh, Meaning of Meaning, and it came out in early 1923, but they probably just met him there, you know, and, they, and he wrote this stuff with the phrase fatty community. So that's what we're trying to talk about. Uh, yeah, and then he hugely influenced Clifford Geertz, who was, of course, really great. Oh, that's the guy that Ted Carpenter doesn't like. He's the one who went, went along with the CIA, uh, and Dorothy Lee wouldn't. Dorothy Lee was, you know, ostracized from anthropology, a great genius of research, uh, associate of Carpenter McLuhan, and she wouldn't go along with the CIA, and Clifford Geertz did. And he became the big icon because uh, he went along with the Pentagon. That's what Ted Carpenter told me. Wow, I had no idea he had a connection to the Pentagon. Yeah, the, the, the CIA, because government designed engineering culture in the late after World War II had to at least be the anthropological level. I call it tetrad management because the real hidden ground was media dynamics, I mean electronic environment. So the content was managing cultures on an engineering level. The CIA invaded all the academic disciplines to figure out who would be the official guys to, to toe the line for the industrial bias, the kinetic bias of the United States. And, and so uh, Ted Carpenter tells the story of the purging of the anthropological field in the early 50s for those that went along with whatever the military was saying it was doing, and that's part of the MKUltra program too. And Carpenter and McLuhan reacted to that. The explorations group was definitely formed to counter a meeting they went to headed by Ray Birdwhistle, and Ray Birdwhistle was one of these military uh, anthropologists leaping to the military, the Cold War dynamic. And Carpenter and McLuhan were upset of, of that in 52 and decided to come up with another way to go around uh, this early MKUltra operation, which they did or didn't know about. 
But that's what McClure meant in his letter to Ezra Pound, that he intended to create a distraction on the uh, sidelines to distract the triggerman. And the triggerman was the CIA and the guys who did the big picture outline of who's what and who, who's on first and who's on second. Um, so that's just a side thing. You mentioned the Clifford Geertz. Uh, I'm allergic to that word. Okay. Huh. So back to Clifford yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, it's just a joke. I'm allergic. If you bring out Clifford Geertz, I was trying to remember his name a few sessions ago to, bring, to say what I just said. It came up earlier, and I couldn't remember the guy's name that Carpenter told me about. I was just saying it was some, the, main, the role model. So Geertz got it from Malinowski. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and he took, uh, so at some point, Geertz uh, cited the Balinese cockfights as the essay that sort of uh, made him think about what he was doing, he coined the term thick description. Um, Th this is Geertz you're talking about? Yeah. And that would be in the 50s? Um, yeah, at some point, right? He was born in the 20s, 1920s. They're like 40 years apart. I'll just look it up here in the wiki. Um, it's really good for instant pattern recognition. That's Yeah, there is it's Clifford Geertz. Yeah, born 1926. Uh, the Andy Warhol generation, Don Thiel, died in 2006. Um, you yeah, got he Princeton. Lived, he's lived a nice, um, long life. Who did? Geertz. No. It, well, okay, 80 years, right. Okay, 80 years, yeah. Um, <laughs> so we were, we're talking about Geertz and the interpretation. Okay, looking. Here it is. His off-sided essay, Deep Play. Notes in the Balinese cockfight. Now, this whole, just taking the words play, I can tell you a whole bunch about McLuhan on that. Play is um, the, in, the new perception in a post-literate culture because what you spoke in a literate age was the ground and you had to get, you know, know what you were saying among the literate uh, manager level. And that's why they wouldn't allow religion and politics to be discussed at their social gatherings because it was too serious. It was your point of view was important during the fragmented Gutenberg era. But once speech moves into the 20th century, the play element comes in. That's Duchamp, that's Joyce. They play with their art forms. It's no longer, quote, hyper-serious. And so here you have this title, Notes on the Balinese Cockfight. We know McLuhan said the Balinese have no art. They just uh, do everything as well as possible. And it's called Deep Play. That's depth criticism. So McLuhan, McLuhan updated would say, Deep Play concepts were created by television. Just like radio created yeah, depth criticism. Yeah, Geertz called it uh, thick description. Say it, say it again. And Geertz called it thick description. T h i c k. Yeah, yeah, like thick. That's depth criticism. That's depth. And here we meet. <laughs> yeah, and and that is what Joyce Joyce. Both Joyce and Pound went around and interviewed their favorite anthropologists and used that in their writings. And McClellan was probably the only literary critic in the 50s saying to write poetry today you have to be aware of all fields including anthropology you list mathematics you list off everything you know that's the way you be a poet it's not the ginsburg way of being a poet the beatniks take over and become the dominant image of poetry because they're more resonant with television but the technical way of being a poet on the McLuhan level is to have you know learned sophistication and and then come up with a way to popularize it which McLuhan successfully did um, but the, uh, you know, you talk to w kids or people I knew who wanted to be poets in the 60s, probably, they first of all thought, I've got to take a drug, got to take some LSD, maybe do some yoga, 
maybe uh, do this and that. That's what they thought would inspire them to be a poet. None of them thought that they had to master, uh, you know, McLuhan's books, uh, Ezra Pound and Finning's Wake. They did not know that's the way you become a, a long, a long resonant poet. But that would be the, if you want to be a Gutenberg poet. But you'd be superseded by Elvis and uh, and Dylan immediately, anyways. So. So that's why uh, people, you would notice a lot of people, like Bruce Powell is a good example. He was a rock musician, and he didn't like the industry, whatever he was doing in it in the 70s, so he dropped off and became a writer. <laughs> All writers in the, in the last 25 years are failed rock musicians, because rock is the real poetry, and McLuhan said that. It's the poetry that responds to the technical cyborgian life. And you'll find... Uh, 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 hmm. Leonard Cohen, a famous poet in the in the uh, Governor General's prize level, but nowhere in 1965. So he decides to become like Dylan. So he gets a guitar and starts singing. So he he keeps his poetry instinct alive by dropping the the. Uh, the literary. Now, McLuhan becomes the most comprehensive poet because he's discussing these dynamics, explaining why Dylan and, and, and Cohen are, are, and Ginsburg are okay, and why Paris Flamand or, or some of those literary um, New York Village, uh, Greenwich Village poets don't make it. Anyways, I'm, I'm jumping about here, but uh, it's, you know what it should be? Deep playing, deep guitar playing. Not deep play, deep guitar playing. I mean, if there's anybody who did thick description, it's here, it says that here in the in music, it's Frank Zappa. He took the thickness of Finnegan's Wake multi-level language and put it into sound with digital assistance. So thick description is a term for um, advertising. And it was so thick that people thought they were being conditioned subliminally. Yeah, but well, can you somebody like... Go ahead, Carol. Sorry. I was just going to say, somebody like Cage or Lamont Young, though, takes it one step further. They take the words out of it in, yep. in terms of uh, using the music, and they bring it to um, what would be, you know, a level possibly beyond what McLuhan has yet to describe. Oh, no, no, no. McLuhan would explain that the rock musician, like Michael Stipe or Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, when they made it in the rock poetry world with their albums and big sellers, they would drop out and hang out with Lamont Young and John Cage to put a patina of literary poetry to it. You know what I mean? They'd, they'd start hanging out with the... That's John Lennon hanging out with Yoko Ono. Right. So to get a sense of an archetypal sense in the Gutenberg world, the, the successful pop poet in rock music would start hanging out with the artists. David Bowie did it. To get the patina of, of the uh, literate uh, modernism effect. And McLuhan would criticize that. He makes fun of that in the cliched archetype. So you see, the very process you just laid out, Carol, is something that McLuhan satirized. He was fully aware of the dyna- dynamic you just laid out and would comment on it on a larger level. Right. So, you remember, McLuhan is a musician, all right? And yet he's the only musician that can move, work in all media. John Cage, at best, he would uh, 
What did John Cage do besides his his performances and happenings? He um, collected mushrooms. He didn't, he, I, don't, I mean, he was famous for his music compositions, but they were very abstract for them. Right. And, out very abstract. Right. And when he wanted the patina of Goomberg authority, he would cite his involvement with Bucky Fuller and Marshall McLuhan. They were the high priests for the avant-garde, whereas John Cage is the high priest for the John Lennons and uh, Thurston Moore. Right. Or William Burroughs would be a high priest. It's very interesting how Burroughs, you take the relationship between Burroughs and, um, and McLuhan. I just saw a new documentary on Burroughs. It has a lot of good footage. I think it's called A Man Within. Check it out on the network. Let me watch this. You go to letmewatchthis.com. They get everything for free. Oh, you know. good. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll check it out, yeah. And, and in it, you see every pop star of the 70s and 80s and 90s, they're photographed with William Burroughs. They make right. sure they hang out with William Burroughs. <clears throat> and the only one who went to McLuhan, and that's, that's, that's pretty interesting, and why Burroughs becomes the poet, the famous poet uh, overseer of pop culture in the 80s and 90s, where we know McLuhan was more appropriate than, than Burroughs and more comprehensive, but nobody knew it and McLuhan wasn't around. But I bet you if McLuhan was around, would Thurston Moore want to hang out with him? There's all kinds of sensory bias in why why the rock poets, the, the real poets of the day, quote poets, uh, hang out with Burroughs and not McLuhan. The only one I know is Brian Eno, who went to de Kirchhoff's seminars at the uh, Center for Culture and Technology after McLuhan died in the 80s. Uh huh. Now, here's an interesting thing. I know that Dave Bowie, uh, I happened to be looking at a Rolling Stone magazine around 1970 and had a picture of Dave Bowie, very long hair. He'd just come over. He was kind of playing it as a folk musician or something. Right, and I right. was amazed. This nobody, who none of us knew yet, he just was just starting to get attention. He quotes McLuhan. Right. <laughs> He's well, talking McLuhan. Intelligent, right. Oh, it was really intelligent. Well, no, I don't. Intelligence is not the matter. If you, the more intelligent you are, you're just more adjusted to the environment. I mean, <laughs> you, if you're intelligent, you will rise up and do well in your cultural context. But you will not be intercultural or intermedia. You have to be right, raving. Maybe, maybe the way I'm using intelligence, though, is more expanded than the way that. You're using it, and you're describing probably what most people would use as it. But you know, but to me, Bowie was an exceptional um, character in the way that he seemed to take in more than other people. Yeah, you're um, right. I mean, he was influenced by uh, the mime guy in England. Now, is it Quentin Crisp or who is that mime? Uh, there's no, a famous Quentin Crisp was New York. Uh, right, but I, I I know I sort of know who you're talking about. Yeah, there's I can look up Bowie on the Wikipedia. The, the, the mime guy is they all went through him. Uh, Lionel, somebody. The a lot of these uh, artists in London, uh, musicians of the '70s went through this. A few of them. Anyways, the point is that they that's what you mean by smart is someone who went to art school, uh, or mime school or something. You know, they they weren't just musicians. Right. Well, yeah. They, no, they, I, yeah, I wasn't necessarily meaning that about the, what I was saying about Bowie. I meant that he was exceptional in his um, abilities and observations and then ways of, um, you know, I, I was really into Bowie uh, when he was popular. Yeah, see, that's why you're, you're citing your own autobiography here. None of these guys are impressive if you know what McLuhan's saying at the time. <laughs> right, right. Not even Zappa. Zappa got pretty close, but when you actually knew what McLuhan was saying... He was he was worthy of being on the cover of Rolling Stone every month. 
in terms of catchy phrases. And so I'm not impressed with people who, who go who like this person or that and have no clue about McClune, which is you fit that bill. You had no McClune, you have no clue what McClune said when you were in the eighties and nineties. Right? No, you weren't just, no, not not too much. I mean I had people refer to him. Yeah, you, you had no clue. You wouldn't be listening today if you knew what McClune said because it's all new to to you to hear what we're saying. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, and uh, it's not a criticism. It, uh, this is a, this can be a, this accusation can be made to 99.9999% of the seven billion people on the planet. <laughs> you know what I mean? Nobody. He was a hidden ground, and yet what was interesting, he still could be famous within that. That's what's fun. That shows you the multi-bodied level. You're famous for one thing, and what you really are good at, no one even knows. <laughs> Well, I think artists did know, though, because they all, you know, quoted him. And no, no, yeah, and they quoted what was they—they they were the user's content. They quoted what they thought he meant by art. They did not know it. They—they they never read what Andrew read the uh, the manifesto there in the late that was not published in the late forties. But if they read, um, if they read that, they would think he meant a conventional artist. They wouldn't know he meant Walter Cronkite. The guy on TV. See, artists read McClure when he comments about art, and they think he's celebrating their world of art. It's far from the only artist around was McClure thought was himself, and he was an indecipherable, unme- immeasurable committee meeting advocate. Uh, you know, he wanted to run the world by a comprehensive committee meeting where he'd study the forms of media effects, not the content. He had, he knew the committee ran the show, was the greatest artist, and he had a better version of this. This is new, Andrew. <laughs> he advocated a more comprehensive committee meeting. <laughs> Do that tomorrow. We need a comprehensive faculty meeting. We're limited to just our verbal stuff. Verbal, too limited. It's, it's mono meeting, you know, monoculture. When you just have a meeting with notes and printed and computers and, and uh, verbal, what a limited backward meeting that is. So here it is. Bowie's fascination with the bazaar was fueled when he met dancer Lindsay Kemp. Yeah. And look what he says about Kemp. Um, and I haven't even read this before, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to be stupid. I know it's going to be stupid, whatever he praises about Kemp, when you know McClellan stuff and juxtaposes. So here's what he says about Kemp. Uh, Kemp lived on his emotions. He was a wonderful influence. His day-to-day life was the most theatrical thing I'd ever seen, ever. It was everything I thought Bohemia probably was. I joined the circus. There, it, there's millions of things we could pick apart here, how stupid that statement is. But, you know, that, just bring in uh, Wyndham Lewis's novel, Apes of God, is, it makes fun of Bohemia. But here is, here's Bowie, not aware that living on your emotions is not comprehensive participant observation. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I could go on, but uh, uh, I tell you, knowing McClure stuff all through the last 40, 50 years, I'd read these quotes and say, man, if they'd only talk to Marshall. I mean, a good thing is to read uh, John Lennon's dialogue, John Ayoko's dialogue with McClure in, the late, in December 69, during uh, Lennon is doing his, his peace thing, and he's doing a festival. Uh, in Toronto, and there's a movie of it. And, and so you can get the transcript online, 
And then you read, I think it's Richie York, the Toronto pop columnist. He's driving around with Lennon, not McLuhan after the uh, thing. He doesn't hang out with McLuhan and get McLuhan's commentary, but he gets Lennon. And Lennon said he felt like it was a case of indigestion. He had eaten so much just listening to what McLuhan said that he was almost sick. He says that. And you know what? And I asked Yoko about that meeting back in 2000 in New York City. I reminded her of the meeting. I said, what did you think? And she said, I realized McClure was right, so I went in the opposite direction. <laughs> now, what would be the opposite direction of someone who appears right? You'd make them, you'd go the fallacy route. <laughs> I'm not going to be right. McClure's got that covered. I'm going to put on fall- fallaciousness. Am I going on too much, Andrew? <laughs> no, no, no. You've just, uh, I believe, uh, stunned people into silence, Bob. Not only have you chastised people early on for not commenting, as soon as they comment, you just banter them like, uh, silence. I don't in. take it personally. Good, good. Don't take it personally. So, so Yana, do you have a, an academic jargon-filled comment to what I'm trying to get at? <laughs> um, it's, it's brewing in my mind. Good, good, good. Yeah. Give us... I mean, that's great to get this stuff on Malinowski. That's, see, you know, I, I named my own book after Malinowski. It's called Fat Communion with Bob Dobbs, and I've never seen that. I, I can go on Wikipedia and read more than I ever knew about him. <laughs> and it's a short article probably in Wikipedia. No, it's pretty long. They, they have pretty good stuff. And then there's the whole thing on uh, Geertz. But... Um, is there anybody who's lurking who would like to bring up stuff? We don't want any accusations of Bob's dominating. Bring up any other topic. <laughs> that would be completely out of line. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, we're, we're, Andrew, prompt them. We, we, no, we can, we can also look to uh, wrap up, Bob. We've done uh, three hours, um, so it's, uh, there is a possibility we could uh, stop. No wrap-ups. We don't have wrap-ups here. And, and this committee meeting never ends. And I'm just thinking the last line in culture's business is there is no finish line. McClellan was commenting on the meeting life, government by committee meeting. You've got to realize this is, you know, the, the uh, New Agers site, the, they romanticize the uh, Native Americans' elders, and they get together and have meetings and pass the pipe, and they, and they talk about the, the, demo, the patina of democracy because everybody shares their opinions or whatever in the, in the tribal image of their decision-making, and they don't know that happens, uh, it's been happening for 40 years as a daily activity known as a committee meeting. Yeah, some Western mysticism, put on your synthetic shirt and a good clip-on tie and hit in with a, a memo and a report and sit around and pass a memo and get a stoner you just from, from, from the meeting. Say it again. Can we have a tarot card reading? <laughs> you know, listen, this is what I was going to say. This is what's really weird that I have not brought up because I keep thinking, oh, they'll kill me. But no, we won't. Me is a very like if you know astrology well, and you really know what we're coming into the the, the change in the energies. Then McLuhan does to me on that level make a tremendous amount of sense. Now I I come from the arts, so I like the artist and what Bowie does and what Dylan does and what John Lennon does and what John Cage does and what Lamont Young does is something that that uh, McLuhan doesn't do. So there's value to me in whether or not they fully took his message to the next level or whatever. There's still value in what they, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Okay. 
<laughs> now, Carol, yeah. when you, we usually say leave your point of view at the door. Leave your autobiography. When you come into McClone's seminar, you're going to probe your biases, and the biases are the arts and your deepest right. wishes and desires are going to be questioned by the McLuhan environment. So I would ask you to look at your valuation of the artist and recognize that there hasn't been that kind of artist in that cultural formation level or cultural ground for 100 years. McLuhan said it ended in 1922. So after World War II, you have Warhol, Cage, and everybody replaying the meme of art for New York uh, museums and the Rockefellers and the... And uh, the museumization of the whole thing, which, you know, Bojan and I'm talking about the commodification of art. That process, we're not criticizing, but we can explain why old arts become culture is our business because of a newer ground. McLuhan's pointing out that the real art is the media dynamic itself, not the content. And then, then you have the wealth. McLuhan predicted in the late 60s that there wouldn't be a real market crash, that there'd be wealth just growing because he knew that obsolescence would, would uh, create wealth, that every human chemical body activity would have a baroque spiral of, of excess, and that's what happened. Nothing but excess about every kind of activity because they're the content in the global theater. But the thing that, that dynamically runs that is the void of digital virtual reality. That voidness or hypertactility, every other sense can come in to fill it up. And so all, everything you've had, the mo, and McLuhan said this would be the greatest century ever. We'd have the most art, the most this, the most science, the most sports, the most every, entertainment, the most stupidity, right. the, the most pain, the most disasters. He's right, because everything, it, to me, it's like we're at that place right now where everything ma- is manifesting on um, like more of an equal level almost so that everything's kind of in, a, in this weird parallel as opposed to being, you know, uh, the main thing or the greater thing. Or no hierarchy. Whatever. No, exactly. Right. Every right. activity right. creates right. its own speech, has its own PR agency and its own medium to right. propagate right. Right. and create its own clientele. Right, right. And that all really fits in with astrology. If you know astrology, those qualities. Uh, that, I mean, when I listen to you talk about McClellan, that's... I think about that, like, a lot. Okay, um, well, you're going to have to drop your astrology. You know what McClune called astrology? Horoscope. I'm not, sure. n- No, no, listen to this. We're going to skewer you for a minute. Uh, hor- horoscope, H-O-R-O-S-C-O-P-E, horoscope. He called the horoscope, H-O-R-O-R. And he said, now you have to look at why did astrology take over in pop culture in the 70s and 80s, why did people write books and become experts on it? Because it was the last gap of the eye culture where you get the bird's eye view, you look over and you have an image of a cosmos that the eyeball and telescopes gave you, and you try to, you try to look at the figure ground relationships. It's media ecology for visual space but it is inadequate to the tactile flow of energies that the Nielsen ratings have to decide every day. The Nielsen ratings are the real astrology. Right. No, I didn't say it was everything, but I did say that if you understood um, certain energies that it talks about, he fits into, and a lot of things he says about the future fit into what uh, the way that I would interpret. Well, uh, gives, uh, before I ask you to give some examples, Here's the, the participant observation of McLuhan. 
he would say he would never do a speech or anything on a full moon. So he had, at least for his chemical body, respect for the astral forces or for the whatever you call those cosmic forces. But he knew that writing books or to talk about what was going on, that the universe had been swallowed up by the Nielsen ratings. The whole universe, the physical body universe, was swallowed up in the angelic discarnate electronic uh, digital android meme space. That was bigger than the universe. So those forces were way bigger than astrology. But he understood why people go from a detached view uh, 100 years ago where astrology wasn't respectable. He said the occult would be retrieved because the occult measures invisible energies. And astrology fits in there. And looking at invisible energies is what a tactile culture does when they achieve acoustic space and their visual space bias is not adequate anymore. So astrology was a figure. Its popular repopularization was a figure of a larger effect of the invisible meta-universe of digital reality. That's what we're talking about. This is what we're asking you to look at here. Bob, if I just interject briefly and just say uh, thank you very much, but I've got to drop off. I've actually got to go to a, a meeting about what to present at a management conference. You've got to go to a meeting. Well, that's the best way. So, Andrew, we're going to be doing our thing tonight? Uh, I hope so. If you've got time, I'd love to do uh, the next session on that. So that'll be okay. Really that... And so um, thanks to Carol and Yana. I, I really enjoyed oh, that. Ciao, Andrew. I'm session. sorry if I. I hope I don't bore anybody with. No, me. you're not Carol, boring you. Don't, I, I love what you bring, and I, like um, it's the. Uh, it's, it's it's content. It's yeah, content. Well, it's, it's not the um, academic side of things. That's for sure. <laughs> No, 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 we're, no, we're conferences for musicians anyway, and and for uh, bureaucrats and for welfare workers and the academics <laughs> are at the bottom of our list. Yeah, and criminals. You know, this right. is this, here comes everybody. This is not an academic thing, though. Andrew is an academic, and he wants this to uh, be useful to that world. But we're not limiting it to that world, right? Okay. So, Carol, you bring on the street New York uh, evidence, which is very important. You bring in data, and to talk about astrology one can do astrology privately and all that, but when you come into this environment, we're going to show you the larger figure grounds uh, way McLuhan would look at it. That's what we're doing here. So we, we want any kind of topic brought up so we can show how McLuhanism is applied to it or how it's not adequate today, McLuhan's point. Right. So it's, uh, don't feel, be self-conscious about what you contribute. We want to have... I mean, you brought in John Cage and all that. No one else said that, and that gets uh, us an opportunity to bring in that part because we can range over everything when we're doing McLuhan because he touched on and affected so many fields and personalities. Right. So, yeah. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate you uh, letting me participate. Well, we don't, it's not a permission. Well, Show up. You're, we, we demand you to be here next, next week and every other week you'll be part of this <laughs> committee meeting. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> Are you saying that you're going to leave now? Uh, yeah, I gotta actually uh, get going. Gotta go to a meeting. And, uh, get working on my <laughs> dissertation. Well, no, I think it's about 10:30, and I think I was supposed to pick someone up at the train station about an hour ago. Um, uh oh. Okay. You know, I'm sure they're comfortable. But yeah, just tell them you were in a meeting. Exactly. That's, that's what I'm gonna do, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's the all-purpose alibi, right? It, people accept it. I was in the media. I couldn't get out. Right, right, right. Completely irrelevant. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, it's been really great. I hope you come back, Yana. It's always yeah, ongoing thank here. Thank you so much. Oh, I love I interaction, really. Okay. I'll, uh, come back. <laughs> All right, great. We'll see you then. So that leaves uh, uh, Carol and I, and um, 
can any of the lurkers come forward now, now that the academics have gone? <laughs> oh, my God. Maybe we should see how many are on here. Um, I could hang up and, oh, no, you just do a star two, I think, does it. Let me just check that. There weren't a lot of people on when I came on. There were only, like, five. So All right, yeah, and that would be, that would be, yeah, hardly anybody. Let me just, um, I got to take, turn off the uh, speakerphone here for a second and put in star two and see how many are on. Just a second. Okay, it says there are four people plus me on the moderator. So that's uh, you. So there's three other lurking. Any lurkers want to come forward? Come on, Brian, say something. Criticize what you've heard. (laughs) Provide content. Else you're just going to have to put up with me and Carol talking with the New York art scene. (laughs) Well, let's let's go into it, Carol. They don't want to say anything. Right. Tell us what you've been thinking about what you've learned so far the past two months about what we're talking about. What do you what what comes to you? What's on your mind well, about it? I, I mean, oh, now I'm getting an echo again. Um, That's because I, I'm I, near the computer, but I'm moving away. Okay, I would just say that you know McLuhan was very very insightful in an accurate way about where the future was going. To me, that's what it's about. The where we're at through where technology has taken us. And now we're at this point. Yeah, where has it taken us? Well, we're at this point where it's going to be, like, indescribable because it's going to be everything. Now, let me just – I'll just supplement that. I'll just supplement. That's the last line of Laws of Media, the book that Eric put out that his father contributed early on. In 1988, the last line is, we're now in an unchartable sea, unmappable. Yeah. And that's 23 that's years ago he said that. And you're saying you can see that now. Yeah. I think that's true. And, you know, in a, in a funny way, this is where I would like connected. You know, I, I read a lot of these websites and stuff, and I've read, I've read a lot about uh, prophecies. And many, many people have said that they can't see uh, what will happen after 2012. And right. I've always interpreted that as the reason being because there would be so many things happening and that, you know what I mean? It wouldn't the bird's eye view is obsolete. You wouldn't right. have one, one level of happening going on. Right, right, exactly. So, you know, to me, McLuhan talks about, and what's fascinating to me is he was talking about it 40, 50 years ago. That's yeah. what's interesting to me because it's really almost not news now. No, you know I mean? you're right. You're right. It, it's, it's, I mean, there's nothing that you're saying that McLuhan said that hasn't been obvious. It's interesting to hear the way he said it, and it's interesting to know that he said it when he said it. Yes, And, yeah. you know, I think the way he says it is uh, amazing. You know, the way that uh, he articulates the ideas, or it, it's just a very interesting intellectual creative way of saying yeah. what he's saying okay right it's not it's not news really in a way to a thinker you know a contemporary thinker and i i work within the contemporary art scene and i'm sort of 
on the forefront of that. Like what I'm doing is in, in the galleries kind of thing. Do you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. I'm uh, and I've always been a future oriented person. So to me, McLuhan is very interesting in that way. That's what I get the most is just what he was saying when he said it, how he said it, and the fact that he said it when he did. Yeah. Now, he knew that people would say what you just said about him. That's why in 1972 in Take Today, he writes how prophetic awareness, ESP, visionary awareness are obsolete. So it's like McClune was the last human statement by a human being before humans went into this mystery landscape of incomprehensibility and unmeasurableness. He said the last, he made the last most eloquent statement about what you could know before that happened. And he predicted it would happen and covered, he partly said, well, maybe we will talk like Finnegan's Wake once we're into the Unchartable. Because that's a book, Uncharting, Unchartable, Unreadable, but accurate in 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 relation to what's happened in the last 50 years, it's the it's the the longest standing book because it's open to the the unmeasurable and includes right. that. Last week you asked me if I'd ever seen the book, but I don't think you ever explained to me why you asked me that. Do you remember why you? Asked no, I ask anybody. You have to no. see what it looks like to understand what we're talking about. You can. It's 60 languages. On each page, jumbled together on the level of just singular letters or syllables and uh, in different languages, you, you cannot read it. It's gibberish. It's a uh, hundred monkeys typing at the same time. Right. So why would he do that? Yet, if you read it carefully, you start to see there are a few English statements, a few paragraphs that lay out the big picture that he's trying to get at. He right. wrote a book in a time when books he knew would be obsolete. So how do you write a book in that situation? How do you write about the future media that are going to kill the book? That's what the book's about, and the only way you can translate a 60-language-per-page book, you don't, don't analyze and interpret the semantic content. You analyze it like McClone did, with the bird's-eye view showing the interaction of different media forms. That's how he translated Finney's Wake, right. which is original right there as a translation. A method of translation, but yeah, the the thing I would say that Mc, you know, go ahead. I mean, it's true. I, it, it's like you know, as a painter, I feel obsolete. Well, I think you you should feel obsolete as a chemical body. Everything, right. no matter whether you paint or not, is obsolete. That's McClellan's point. It's he weird. says that in 1946. I know why. You know. I, I, it's been an experience. I mean, prior to knowing that McLuhan said that it was, you know, the future. Well, it's not hard. Look, people have felt obsolete about painting since the 20s because often artists like to be where the action is. And the action was moving to Hollywood, to movies, to radio, to right. jazz, Louis Armstrong. Right, right, and right. A, a natural, ambitious artist wants to be at the best parties. They're going to think, i got to get over in the jazz world to be at the best parties. Right. And and so Duchamp was a good epitome of that, you know. He dropped the making art objects and just networked. <laughs> and, and, uh, well, and well, you know that that is what's happening in the art scene, though. You know, I mean, uh, painting is kind of obsolete. I mean, what's going on is, uh, you know, everything but. But here, you know, here's what you got to realize: that obsolescence, as McLuhan means, there's more of it going on than ever. 
The New York art world in the 90s and the, in the past 10 years was incredibly productive, millions of kinds of arts, to the point the Village Voice uh, a critic, Jerry, forget his last name, he quit. He says, I, there's no function to how to measure this incredible wealth that's going on. Not that any of it was significant, but there were a lot of people with money who wanted to buy art. Right, right, right. So there were more opportunities to, to make money as an artist, not to be the romantic idea of a cultural formation or a cultural avant-garde that was influencing people. That's not happening. That's happening. That's Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> right. You know, she has a big influence. In the Android meme, I don't think it's an influence on people, but she influences book publishing. She influences right. media content, and that's just one part of the Android meme influence another part. There's no chemical body factor in there. There is no Carol in your last name you know, in, in this world. There's no me in the world. But if you're aware right. of the multi-bodies that have been manufactured for you, then you might be uh, better able to navigate, navigate what's going on. Because a lot of people get, de- over the last 40 years, people get depressed because there's no social space, chemical body social space, for them to form an identity in. Right. It's what they call the loneliness of being an American or the isolation of being an American, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, you've got more than one body. And if you just focus on your chemical body, you, uh, you um, think that's your whole being then the chip body and, and TV body will make the chemical body feel isolated. But if you know that you're actually living in the other bodies, you wouldn't be so feeling isolated. You'd feel like a participant observer. <laughs> that makes sense in a way. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no. Um, this stuff about McLuhan, I mean, le- learning about McLuhan is just amazing. I mean, like I said, I've always had people talking about him in the background. I'm sure that the people that, um, you know, that school that it, Mary was talking about education, I guess it was last week yeah. or the week before, I can't remember. I didn't say anything, but um, I had experienced, uh, you know, a completely different kind of education, you know. So I, I sort of, you know, knew what she was trying to be supportive of and those people I think were very heavily uh, influenced by McClellan well every um, you have to realize that the in the 60s when the shocking thing of a televised war happening Vietnam and then the rock and the drug taking and the sexual revolution all these crazy things are upsetting the average American sense of what was proper in the public space they needed someone to, to give the why. Why is this happening? And McLuhan, in the mid-60s, came up. He was the only professor who pretended to know what was going on. Right. And he actually knew it so well, the pretense part, that he got, he got it right, because he knew he was in a world of, of put-on in the public space. So McLuhan was, to the degree people required somebody in the mid-60s to explain, some father figure explaining why things are crazy, he fulfilled that that mandate. Right. What was interesting, that mandate in the public was obsolesced by 1970. People didn't care. Uh, who, <laughs> they didn't want a father figure telling them. They started doing their own thing. Now, not everybody. And there was always Generation X kids coming up, and they, the markets for 18-year-olds to find, to read The Greening of America, or read uh, Carl Sagan. They'll read somebody, some book authority. Uh, but then it became turned over faster and faster, and more and more, each generation since then gave up and caring about who uh, was the the right speech architect, like the Pope tries to be, about what's going on. And um, that's why there was a book written in the 80s, The Death of the Public Intellectual. 
McLuhan was the last public intellectual in North American culture. Now you look in Europe, they still had it going with Foucault and the postmodernists because it was a slower culture, more embedded in literacy. They, you still could be a literary authority or a, a knowing-all kind of poet-critic of society, and that's why postmodernism took over, because you had Bojard, Foucault, Barth, and them. They were still necessary in, in Europe. And so the universities in America had to bring over those guys to pretend to, to, to create book stuff for their students, book authorities. Now, what's amazing is McClellan predicted that. He said America in the 50s is Europeanizing and Europe is Americanizing. Right. So, so tell that to Savelle Latringe, you know, who, who brought in the Semutech series in 1982-83. Tell him that he was uh, acting out the mandate of McLuhan that Americans having an identity crisis with the new tactility would go for Europeanized authorities, Europeanized culture, and that's what postmodernism is. A syndrome that McLuhan predicted. Four universities who represent the printing press, and they must have authoritative figures of the printing press. They couldn't get any in America. They couldn't, they couldn't keep using McLuhan because he was too good and too dangerous and too x-rayed the whole thing and exposed everybody's hypocrisy. So they had to go to these convoluted uh, guys in, from France. And so that served the, the book world. Meanwhile, what was happening in the book world in, uh, in the United States was people like Norm Mailer, you know, uh, going through scandals of trying to write a novel and supporting some prisoner who comes out and kills a few people, and Mailer's trying to make movies. The book enterprise got dissipated. And you would have seen that in New York in the 80s. You still there? Yeah, I'm listening. Yeah. So remember, the university is hoiking up the printing press. And they need new books. And there weren't any figures happening in America. So they had to bring over the French guys or translators of the French guy. Coker comes in on that thing. But what was going on in America was the university students didn't care about books. They were... They were having their alcoholic binges, their parties in Fort Lauderdale, and running around having a great life, enjoying the abundance of the Reagan era and the well, 90s. They were already, like, TV'd out, you know what I mean? Like, right. they were already living the TV landscape, like, that, fully. Right, and then they were looking in early, you know, consumers of the, of the chip landscape yeah, when computers early. started coming in. And right. then they actually became business people, you know, like, uh, made lots of temporary chip right. companies. Uh, and, right, and, right. And, and, and the French culture is just trying to decide whether they have McDonald's there or not, or Disney <laughs> theme parks. Really slow, right? Not, not a criticism, just that they're on a whole different sensory dynamic. Right. So that's, it. That, that's what McLuhan would always be commenting on from the global bird's eye perspective of the intercultural right. biases. In other words, instead of reviewing a play like Frank Rich would do on Broadway, where he'd analyze the different characters, he analyzed whole cultures as characters and how they interacted. <laughs> he was the, the Frank Rich of the global theater. Well, you see, this is where I'm having an issue with a, a lot of things that are going on in contemporary art, because they're uh, talking about society, you know, like very unique, uh, like, uh, like uh, what do you call it, um, very intricate little particular aspects of and yes. it's just it, it, it's to me it's really trite do you know what I mean especially in lieu of listening to what McLuhan would have to say right so even though that stuff is selling for multi-millions of dollars 
or whatever and, you know, getting all kinds of press and this and the other thing, it's really outdated, which oftentimes contemporary art is almost. You know what I mean? Like, well, it used to not be, but it, it, the art activity, painting, sculpture is outdated because it's analog media. It's not digital. It's not, it's not the reality right. TV shows. It's not TMZ. And, right. uh, and so, therefore, and McClellan predicted this, art will become like medieval guilds. Go right. to little specialist audience, usually right. people who right. bourgeois have got money from the, the uh, affluence right. that virtual reality created, the virtual economy created affluence, which could be taken away in a second. But while they had it, they, would, they wanted to put nice paintings in their home. So there's a big audience for that market. But then if you go into... Um, What's her name? Uh, does October? Rosalind Krauss. You go into her, her journal, which is the main art journal, one of the main ones. Uh, they're analyzing some obscure art object that Duchamp made in 1946, and and, and projecting great societal significance on it. This is right. the, the the minutia, the tininess of the art of the critical world what McClune called the literary clacks, the small magazine world. And in New York City, that is what people know that world. Not out in Kansas, but the sophisticated, educated people that you know in New York, they'll read a journal on microtonality. You know what I mean? (laughs) And you'll you'll even be the secretary for the festivals of them. Right, 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 right. No, I mean, it's, you know, right. It's not... They, they say we're doing this to educate the public and new kinds of music, whatever nonsense you would put out in your pamphlet, right? That right. is the English language. It is not true. It's puny, but it is okay for a New York society. It, there's an audience for it. But it, they, are, they don't have the language for the big view. The big view must begin with something like the five bodies or the android meme. And even to explain that takes a lot of time. But... To talk about, and this is what Baudrillard, remember Baudrillard becomes a big influence in the art world by his books, and then he says the artist got it all wrong. He, he disavowed, you know, disaffiliated himself with the guys who loved his work because they didn't even begin to get what he's talking about, and that was because they were do, trying to make old obsolete art in response to a virtual Android meme that couldn't be turned into art objects. That's what Baudrillard wrote about. Well, you know, he had a point. Yeah, and he got it from McLuhan, or he developed it from McLuhan. Right, and right. that's why Warhol, become, he made a big deal. He liked Warhol because Warhol, many levels of Warhol, but on a simple level, he, he, didn't, he wasn't in the art world. But he, he, they thought he was an artist, so they said he was the Pope of American art because he was right, somehow right. affiliated with it. But he didn't, all he did was go to parties and write it up in an interview magazine. Right, right. You know? He, he he created the right medium. The new gallery was a magazine that would be on the newsstands. Right. So that was his gallery, and he had, I don't know how much he understood it, but he just did it. And right. No, I think he did understand what uh, Warhol. I think he knew what he was doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He, he did. Okay. I mean, that's but, he, what, but you know, you know, you know what I critique him is that he didn't have the guts to at least somewhere spell out why he was doing it in an intellectual, jargonistic kind of way that McClone would. See, if he really oh, understood... It wasn't, his sti- it wasn't his style. That's not... Well, I mean, that's he the point a- here. That's why yeah, he's a limited he artist. You do, you well, do no, more no, than no, your style. He was a visual artist. That's he's a businessman. He said he prefers right, well. business art. He writes his biography. I'm a businessman. I do business art. And that means he specializes. <laughs> what? Right. No, he did do business art. I mean, that's, you know. Yeah. 
And the point is he specialized. He didn't have the guts to be real avant-garde in the Antonin Artaud sense or the Dadaist sense. He did not do a, a, an anarchistic attack on culture. Not that you would do traditional anarchism. But anyways, he did not go all the way like McLuhan did and jeopardize his own, his own uh, status by actually talking articulate, using McLuhan kind of language, about what's going on. You read his stupid... His books he's done from A to B, they make little sociological statements here and then, but it's all thousands of volumes of Fadic talking about to Bridget on phone calls, you know, phone call stuff. Now, that could be a satire, but he didn't have the guts to state why he was doing that. And, and you know, you know what's interesting? Uh, Tom Wolfe in The Painted Word says to have an art form that's dominant in the 20th century, you've got to have a theory to go with it. Abstract right. expressionism had Greenberg. Yeah, that's yeah, that's very. I mean, now you have to have a whole. Um, you know, it's not valid unless you explain it, and it's yeah, explanation right. more of the time that um, it, it's it's supposed to be visual art, but the visual doesn't do the. Your interview, your interview right, yeah. is more important. Your interview yeah. in art form is more important than your art. Okay. Yeah. Now, what's in interesting time, about right. Warhol? is that he, he's counter to the, the Tom Wolfe thesis. He never did present a theory and had staying power, maybe because of that, or just because he allowed himself to be any medium and didn't care where he was. He wasn't limiting himself to being an artist. But the art well, world I thought... Think, I think it was because he was the one that sort <clears> of um, was the transition between the, those that never had to explain themselves and those that, that have to explain themselves. Right, right. He was... He was he, uh, he, you know, he was that he was that place, that 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 edge, that transition. Point right. Where now that's one. Was, you're defining one tiny aspect. Of Warhol. He also said, "I'd rather be a machine." You know, there's other things that he said, and he see. So any description of Warhol by words is not going to get it all. You've got to actually can create other contradictory threads or threads that deal with other media levels or other body levels to do an accurate description of a phenomenon like. Wayne Gretzky, Magic Johnson, uh, uh, George Bush, or Andy Warhol. You've got to do multiple levels. So you're not going to try def- you're not going to stay with one, some simple definition of what he was. That's a good right. point to say he's a transition. But there's a lot more you can say that because he he is not a transition to the theory because the theories were happening before him with uh, Clement Greenberg for the abstract expressionists in the 50s. Right, but he wasn't an abstract expressionist. He, no. he was like a bridge between what is basically happening now, like that, that hyper-commercialism of right. her and Jeff Koons. You know, yeah, that's Warhol where he, was, that's, uh, he does he not fit great. into Tom Wolfe's thesis. He's beyond. Tom Wolfe's painted word thing is really just about the art world of New York. Warhol went beyond the art world of New York, got into the media landscapes, beyond TV shows and that, He's a transition from, you could say, well, it's a transition from New York to the TV landscape. Mm-hmm. No, he, you know, he was an important figure in, uh, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people that, oh, boy, you know, that guy, I don't understand it. He didn't right. really paint, you know, or yeah. there's other people that just, you know, love him, you know, um, but, and don't necessarily get the whole picture either. But, you know, right. that's what... That's what makes somebody great great is that it, they hit it on a lot of levels. You know, what they're I mean? an environment. Not, That's where they're right. an environment, and exactly. and not anybody can get a whole description of it. Right, right. And that's you know, I mean, the better you can do that. 
And that's what I would say McClune was. He was the key environment. The the individual, to the degree an individual could be environment, he was the originator environment of the second half of the 20th century, himself and his ideas and scenario and way he lived or what he talked Uh about. And Warhol does say, it says at the Warhol Foundation, that Warhol got his famous sentence, uh, everybody be famous for 50 minutes, he got it from Reedy McClune. Yeah, I'm sure he did. It fits right in with that. Yeah, yeah. Thing, you know? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, McClune to me is a philosopher. You know what I mean? And um, No, but he made movies. He made movies. He made record albums. Uh-huh. You know. He made many movies. There's one, Picnic yeah. in Space, uh, the one with Jane Jacobs, the famous New Yorker activist architect, designer. And you should hear he did interviews discussing some of the movies that he was going to make that he never made, but that was part of the satire. He wasn't going to limit himself to uh, to just making movies. He says in the uh, film magazine of Canada around 1970 called Take One, that was a film magazine, and he says, he describes the movie he's making, and he says they had the the film camera going, the projector, projecting on the wall, and there might have been more than one, and he said... The projector had no film in it. He's describing his movie. My movie is, proje- is making this projector project light on the walls, and it has no camera, no, no content, filmic content, and it's the adjustment of the levels of lighting in relation to the room, which is the important part of the film. Now, that is absurd, right? To normal no, understanding. No, not really, but you know, not anymore. I'm seeing plenty not of anymore. He was doing concept, concept art right, before concept right. art. Right. I mean, he's being interviewed and making a big deal of how you adjust the lighting of the projector machine right. with no content in it. Right. Now, that's satirical. Right. And claiming that's a movie you're making. Now, he did actually make movies, uh, technical ones. There's hmm. three of them uh, that I know of. There's Picnic in Space, uh, uh, Break, uh, The Finning is a Fire. It's a line from... Finney's Wake about burning wood, burning wood, uh, which is about the Spadina Expressway coming through Toronto, which he led a protest against. So he made these little things, but a lot of it was like Warhol. Other people made the actual work while he directed them and told them what to do. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I mean, even Da Vinci did that. Right, right. And It seems to be a popular theme through the years. Once you get famous, you get somebody else to do it. He even did TV shows in 1960 on CBC. He did a great satire on Lolita, the famous novel that had come out at that time. Right. So you can see some of that stuff online and YouTube's yeah. and that. But the, should, the point... What was the name of that site that you told me about before? I don't know. Do you remember? Today? Yeah, you had mentioned this great site to watch. Um, oh, letmewatchthis.com. One word. Right. Letmewatchthis.com. Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, you were saying something. So when you talk about, about the art world, I consider right. you, like McClure, when he came to New York, he started to be famous in 66, 67. I think this is before the big famous 67. There's a Village Voice article. And, and McClure is being interviewed by the famous journalist of the, of the Voice at that time. And the guy quotes McClure. And McClure says, we're going to bury this little village. 
He's saying that about New York City. That's what he comes in. Very the enemy, the aggressor. He says, We're gonna bury this little village. Now he didn't realize, you know, he'd be on NBC T V special uh in a week and a year later. But right. uh but the journalist after quoting McLuhan and that was one of the quotes, he says, you know, McLuhan is the sanest person outside of a mental institute. <laughs> he's, he's, in other words, the, the journalist says everybody in the mental institute is, is sane, but McLuhan's the only one in the outside mental institute world, which is the insane world, who's still sane. <laughs> so, I mean, they didn't know how to react to this stuff. Now it's kind of obvious, but it's interesting, like, they didn't know how to react to Stravinsky's 1913 uh, Rights of Spring, or whatever it was that he did in 1913, caused a riot. McClune caused a riot. So Lenny Bruce, I mean, you know. Yeah, but Lenny Bruce ends up killing himself. Right. <laughs> you know, but the, these guys, they couldn't take the fame. Now, here's an interesting point. Gerd Stern, who was on, you know, weeks ago, right. he introduced Lenny Bruce to Hugh Hefner. And uh-huh. Gerd, who knew, was a friend of Lenny Bruce because his girlfriend was Maya Angelo. Clinton's uh, poet laureate in '93 at the inauguration, so he was part of the jazz club world because Maya Angelou was a singer and her mother ran a club. So Gerd met all the jazz musicians in the early '50s. So he met Lenny Bruce in that underground culture right, and was right. a, was a friend of his. When when Gerd met, he wrote a he did some writing with uh, a Spektorsky. A. C. Spektorsky was one of the main editors, I think, at Playboy. So. Gerd knew him. So Gerd meets Hugh Hefner. He introduces Hugh Hefner to Lenny Bruce, probably took Hugh Hefner to, this is the late 50s, took him to a nightclub. Hugh Hefner then thought Bruce was great and made an effort to make him famous and did. And Gerd feels sorry because Lenny couldn't handle the fame and fucked up. Okay? Now here you got Gerd said about Lenny Bruce and you bring up Lenny Bruce. Gerd also feels the same remorse about McLuhan because he's the guy who introduced Howard Gossies, the famous San Francisco ad man who started to make McLuhan famous in the mid 60s. Gerd introduced McLuhan to him and he says that McLuhan couldn't take it or suffered the effects of that. I don't know if Gerd's right, but it's interesting that Gerd was the interface for lowbrow culture, Lenny Bruce, and highbrow culture of the University of Toronto. Right. And they both were introduced to the Android meme and suffered the effects. And Gerd was our guest here on with George Thompson in our second uh, seminar. Right. And you can, we all you can, the <laughs> right? And we all do. And that's I what McLuhan so. understood. And so did James Joyce. Here comes everybody to the hospital clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, listen, now Gerd Stern. I've done a 24-hour interview with Gerd Stern. If you want to hear a Forrest Gump. And the history of the art world, you should listen to that. Because Gerd met everybody that you either ran across or looked up to. I mean, Gerd in the early 60s got a, a, a book from John Cage. What was that book? Huh? It was the unpublished manuscript for McLuhan's project for the National Educational Broadcasters Organization. He did wow. this report, which, which got developed with the later book in 1964 called Understanding Media. But he did this report in 1960 which was so controversial, con- congressional guys complained about the National Educational Broadcast Association put funding money for this crazy Canadian professor saying right, this right. nutty stuff about television. And uh, so that report circulated in 61, 62, 63 among friends and associates of McLuhan, and Gerd read it and was very influenced by it, then did an art show around the week that Kennedy was assassinated in the San Francisco Museum, 
and that led to a guy inviting him up to Toronto, uh, Vancouver in January 64, where he met McLuhan, his hero at that time, because he had read the right. book from John Cage. So well, John Cage has a big influence on the Fluxus group. See, and it's the Fluxus group, one of the Fluxus photographers, is uh, the photographer in the medium is the massage. So the very world that you hung around in, in the 80s, 90s New York, is the world in the New York scene that promoted McLuhan. Right. I know, I know, because, I mean, people used to talk to me about him all the time. It wasn't like I'd never heard of him. I just never read him. You know what I mean? Uh, but, but you were in uh, the avant-garde culture, so you'd hear some of these uh, oh, after yeah, images. Hear, yeah, people talking about him as an influence constantly. You know. Now, what was interesting is that you being uh, an 80s and 90s person, what people say is not very significant. So you heard the name. It was just another gossip column reference point for you. You, weren't, you were involved in New York culture, which is a post-verbal culture. You're running around doing what all the stuff you were doing, interacting with these scenes, and not concerned about what a book said or what a, uh, a, a mouth said, you know, authoritative mouth. Right, especially one so popular. Like, if I heard everybody talking about something all the time, it was already boring in a way. Yeah, see, that's the point. You you had the tribal, you're almost superstitious. If something was talked about and became a meme, you knew, expressing literate bias of being the individual autonomous cognition, you knew to avoid that. And New York is made up of a million people who all try to be individuals in the literate sense and yet they all work for industries that wipe out literacy. Yeah. <laughs> it's wild. It is wild. It's, it's accurate. I, it's wild. Now, what do you mean by wild? Uh, it's, what is wild? It's, you know, because it, it does really explain, you know, when you, when you go into great detail, it does really explain something that I see, you know? Yeah. It gives you the simpler anthropological terms, but they're not anthropology. Right. They're, it's like an anthropological view, but it is broader and more general with weatherman terms like hot and cold media or visual bias and acoustic bias. Those are useful, broad terms. It's a language for the average person. Right. See, it was interesting here, Yana. Did you, were you on the first hour or so? Um, I got in around 8 o'clock or so, yeah. So I heard her talk. I didn't hear the whole thing. Right, but, but you heard some of her academic categories. Right, right, right. You know, that is normal when you uh, get into college. That's the language, that's, the, that's what's happened, the yeah. bureaucratization of speech. And yeah. uh, you learn to talk about what you can see McLuhan create a simple language for the average whoever uh, who was not going to go to college and learn this stuff. But what was interesting, by the 80s, all kinds of poor people were going to college. That's the only place they had to go because they got laid off. And so you had a lot of poor, you know, lower middle class people whose parents never would have talked jargon going and writing jargon and doing jargon papers for some bird course in a university in New York. Right. City College. And, of course, with the budget cuts, City College has been a big story the past 10 years in New York City. You know, the unionization of the teachers and... Uh, the issues of... Uh, you ever heard of Stanley Aronowitz? No. He's the, he's the head of the union of teachers, uh, the main activist, radical leftist activist at City College. Uh, CUNY, sorry, CUNY. Right, and, right. Um, that, the whole budget cuts. CUNY was right. made for the average man, you know, in the right. 40s or wherever. And then right. now it's uh, 
Right. I don't know who can go to it now. I don't know either, but uh, it doesn't have such a bad reputation either. Sometimes you you hear of very interesting people teaching there. Oh yeah, but it's actually you know here no this is a good. By the eighties, the art world, the Soho world, and village world or uptown art world was so obsolete that most of the artists trying to make it in those galleries ended up being teachers at CUNY. So yes, they had avant-garde teachers and thinkers, but they right, could not right. make a living doing their art, but they were pretty good at ideas. So the variety of courses at New School and uh, CUNY are incredible. There was many right, that right. I would want to have sat in on, and some of them I knew and invited me to speak at them, but I didn't go down there too much. It was too uh, too big of an ordeal to get down and go through that, the thing. And uh, so I didn't speak there too much, but I go. Okay, I, I had saw some good panels there. Definitely, the old avant-garde literary culture you associate with the fifties, sixties happened at those universities in New York City. Right. And also, uh, I didn't want to go teach there beca- or talk there because they, I would talk the McLuhan stuff, and they wouldn't like that. See, you're not. I would have right. exposed the teacher. I would have exposed the reason. And I did do it to Canada's most famous artist, Michael Snow, and he didn't disagree with me. I told him how he was used by professors, and they propped up his art so the professors would have course content. Because the real job was to be a professor at university, and you got all these kids, and you get, a, you get paid. And the 80s and 90s is starving if you're an artist, and you know about that. And, and Michael Snow, uh, he was famous, but he still had to make art. And the... The teachers of his art in university had a better income, so to speak, than he did. At least had a stable income. Now, he's famous, and he probably became a millionaire, but there's many people like who were famous artists in the 50s, 60s who were starving in the 80s. Right, right. And they'd be like Carol Lee Schneeman. Do you know Carol Lee right, Schneeman right. or yes. Schneeman? I actually, yes, I've actually been to her studio. She's not alive anymore, but when she was. Oh, did Carol Lee die? Oh, yeah, like a while ago, I'm pretty sure. I'm on the, well, let me I'm check that. I mean, she yeah. was ill. See, I met yeah, her in the, uh, in the I'm, 90s. Yeah, I'm 100% I mean, sure almost because I think they had a retrospect of her artwork, I don't know, within the last two years at one of the major galleries in Chelsea. But okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to wiki that and we'll, we'll get that because yeah. that's an update for me. I knew her. And she right. was so symptomatic of the situation and why she died, why she got ill, the stress of right. it. Okay, right. Carolee Schneeman. Do you know uh, Hannah Wilkie by any chance? Did you no, know? it doesn't say she's dead in, uh, in the Wikipedia. All right. She's not well, dead, that's, if right, that's up to date. Right, but know. who did you just ask me about? Um... Hannah Wilkie. Did you ever know who Hannah Wilkie was by any chance? Yeah, she was the German artist, and the, they made a lot out of her later, long after she was dead, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she's, you know, yeah. I just wondered, because she was sort of in that genre. There's that another one, he, Eve, somebody, um, who was who died and was made famous in the museums yeah. later. Uh, let right, me see, right, Hannah, right. W-I-L-K-I-E? Yeah, I, I think so. Oh, no, there it is. It's a... Okay, yeah, she... Mm-hmm. Hannah Wilkie, 1940 to 1993. Yes, I An American... Yeah, American painter, sculptor, photographer, video artist, and performance artist. All the things that Carolee Schneeman was. Right, I mean, right. she's... She was, a, she's yeah, she, yeah, she was a little bit uh, before the uh, Schneeman's time. 
Cause right. She, uh, yeah. Well, she's a year younger, but uh, I think she's pretty. Well, let me see. She actually was after Shneeman. Shneeman is the mid '60s, oh, and really? yeah, and it says from '69 to '77, Wilkie was in a relationship with the American pop artist Claus Oldenburg, and they lived, worked, and traveled together during that time. Wilkie's work was exhibited nationally and internationally throughout her life, and continues to be shown posthumously. One woman gallery exhibitions of her work were first shown in New York and Los Angeles in 72. So she's after Schneeman. She's oh, more of a okay. 70s phenomenon. But the, the right. point is that these people, they were extensions in parallel to the counterculture. And the counterculture got wiped out by, you know, the Android meme by the mid-70s. And so these people would enter the 80s with no money. Nobody, is, no. The, the economic galleries were pretty fragile. And, but what would happen is in the 80s and 90s, the baby boomers, uh, art professors, would get gigs at university and bring Carolee Schneeman and Hannah Wilkie and these people into class to show the museum piece, the, the zoo. Here's here's a famous artist. This person was very revolutionary in the 60s and 70s, you know. And and so the professor would um, would have the gig and celebrate the radical image of the artist. So uh, when I met Carolee Schneeman in '97, she uh, appeared on a panel down in Soho with the, prof- the art professor that had sponsored her, all right, or taught her. So the art professor is bringing Carolee. Well, all Carolee did in the interview, here's the professor wants everybody to appreciate Carolee's amazing intellectual abstractions in her art and her resonance and relevance. And all Carolee was just would say was, I ain't got no money. Please, someone, give me really? some money. <laughs> she was very sort of cynical and pissed off at the whole environment. And uh, a few months a few months after that, I was in Banff at a conference that I spoke at. That was put on by Severo Latrange, the guy who started postmodernism, and Carolee was there. So I got to spend some time with her, and she went into more details about uh, the ho- horrible fate of her situation, where she's famous but has no money, and the people that teach her are doing well. See, that's culture is our business. That's what McLuhan meant, that those culture content people of the first half of the 20th century and the 50s became the content for the information environment so that poor kids could go to CUNY and read about these people who'd been obsolesced by the very environment that allowed these kids to go to school. Right. That was the hypocrisy. And so some of these people had to become art critics or write essays for art form and that. and They're doing all kinds of things, just trying to just right. survive. I know. You see that a lot. Like people that were really big in the 80s in the East Village art scene, there were, some of them were very, very hot, you know, and that came and went and, you know. Yeah. It's just like, because of the turnover. You, you have 10,000 years happens in the 80s. And if you the were an Molly artist. Molly Ringwald syndrome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Molly Ringwald. You'd be famous for 1,000 years. That would be about a year and a half, technically. Right. Uh, and then it would be subsumed by the next pharaoh. I mean, Lady Gaga is an interesting phenomenon. She directly brags about the background we're talking about and claims she comes from that, the performance art world in New York City. I mean, she was at the school, I think, the School of Visual Arts, where a lot of these people teach. No, no, she went to NYU. Oh, it was NYU? Okay. But she was part of uh, that New York scene where the kids would be doing stuff in the galleries and doing performances either... uh, in the daytime, they'd be going to the School of Visual Design or NYU. It's all the same zone, same scene. Right, right. Yes, it is. And she talks about how her work is an update of Andy Warhol and performance art, but it is not what she thinks it is. She's using art history um, 
second half of the 20th century art history uh, to, to give her conceptual framework for what she's doing, but that's not adequate. She, she could use my five-bodied stuff better or McLuhan stuff to describe what she's doing. But McLuhan is not even completely adequate. It, it, to the people who would know what you're talking about, if you cited McLuhan, they don't like McLuhan. It's obsolete. They can see that. Anyways, um, uh, that's a syndrome that you came into in the 80s. You came to New York, you were a painter, and what do you want to say happened to you? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, you know, you just watch this thing. I mean, you know, I, I stayed out of it for most of the 90s um, through. You I, did I other things. Yeah, I stayed on the fringe. You know, Because I was, you were an artist of survival. The thing was well, to stay in New York and survive and be able to have yeah. a way to stay there. And also, you know, I wasn't interested in necessarily doing what was being done just because that was what was bringing in money. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, that, that... Well, you were able... In the abundance of New York, you don't have to make money. You, there's ways to live there <laughs> without having any normal 9-to-5 income, which is what you did. Yeah. And that's a kind of art. McClune would say, surviving in New York City is an art. I know, and the way I dressed, too, was, like, part of that whole thing. Like, I would just play on the streets in a certain kind of way, you know. it was. Did a, you say play on the streets? Yeah, like the way that I would dress in the 90s. Yeah. Um, in these costumes, you know, like, and people would stop me in the street and ask me, like, what religion I was, what, kind, what language mm-hmm. I spoke, um, where my, my costume was from. You know, it was like really on the edge. Like, now, you had friends who knew that was happening, and you'd have a bit of status among your friends because that was your art, to get yeah. attention that way. And yeah. in the ground of New York City, with the abundance that was there, you could uh, have a make a living being yeah, that well, character. Right, and you could, also get, you could also get away with it here, where you can't get away with it in other parts of the world even like yeah. when I would dress like that in Switzerland they would just scream at me what are you what fasten off you know because they have this thing during Lent you know it's sort of their their version of it it's called Fasnoff and that's when they all dress up like right for two weeks. so you were doing Halloween out of season and they didn't right, like that right right they, it freaked them out like <laughs> it didn't freak New Yorkers out it, most of them um, most of them like knew that it was an art form you know what I mean right after 9-11 I stopped doing it because it was no longer looked at that way it was looked at like something very different, so I stopped and I changed. Yeah, the ground changed. And right. now the ground changing and why you would be seen one way in New York and another way in Zurich, Switzerland, is exactly the dynamics that McLuhan would review as the Frank Rich of the global theater. He would review the, the, the way you would show up in different places and what would the right. effect be. That would tell him more about the culture than any painting you made. Right, right. Well, I mean, you know, there was a whole thing in that type of experience, like the way certain kinds of people reacted to you, what people thought of you, and then, you know, when you take it out of the context, like, say, of New York City and bring it into other places, like, um, Arab guys loved me because I was um, in the right place for them. Do you know what I mean? Who loved you? Like, Arab guys, ethnic guys. Oh, Arab Arab Americans? Arab guys. 
yeah, yeah, like Arab guys or, um, you know, uh, black guys or Indian guys, like anybody from indigenous cultures could because re- that's what I kind of uh, would dress up like. I would look yeah. like I was from somewhere else. Right. You know what I mean? Not Western, but nobody could really put their finger on it. And then they would like, I mean, one time I was hanging out with some friends of mine and somebody stopped my friend on the street and said to him, no, what language does she speak? And he was like, <laughs> like he, you know, he told that story like several You know what times. you were doing? You were an artist yeah. of visual puns for the Global mm-hmm. Theater. You dis- yeah, disoriented right. people. They couldn't categorize where you're from, but you actually were an image of what everybody was. Everybody is from everywhere else because you're everywhere on the discarnate telephone. You can be in many cultures. You actually were an artist of showing what e- you were trying to show the TV body. Yeah, I was. Do- I mean, I was, you know, I was conscious of what I was doing, and it was, it was fun. It was a no, but you were conscious of, of what you were doing. It was fun, but I'm putting you in a larger context. You yeah, unconsciously no. were expressing the TV body, which is where. What is your TV body? You have you take in information from all over the world, see it, and you go there by TV. So if that's your culture, you're made up of everything you've seen on TV all over the world. Just if you watch National Geographic. And the result would be you would, describe, you would make yourself as a global citizen look like the way you did where you couldn't really place where you were from because right. it would just imply different other cultures, but nobody right. would sure. You actually, did, you, we should make you famous here at Dobbstown. You, you, are, you attempted to mime in your life your TV body. You didn't think of it that way, but that's what it is. So... so uh, Maybe I didn't we think should of it that way, but I did think of it as you know, like uh, you know, in, on other levels. As, well, what you did know, you think? Okay, what was the content of your thinking? What What did you think you were doing? Just trying to be interesting, trying to get attention. Why did you think that would get you attention if that's what you were doing? Thinking. Well, it wasn't even for attention. It was just like you know, something that I loved doing, and it, it was... But what is it that you loved doing? You loved wearing odd clothes, so it had the effect that people didn't know where you're from? That's what you loved doing? Well, I loved wearing interesting clothing that put a lot of different colors and patterns together. You were painting and, with your clothes. Yes. Painting. Yes. Okay, so, no, that's you know, good. That's art. And then I started wearing hats. So then, you know, that became like this whole thing, like you know, the hats with the clothing. And I was wearing hats from all, like, the most interesting hats I was finding were from, like, Thailand and India and Afghanistan and China, like all the, um, you know, Africa. I mean... Now, where would you find these? In stores in the village or do you have to go uptown? Where would you get them? Everywhere. I mean, sometimes people gave me things, like, sometimes people gave me really interesting things. Like, one night... This woman came, this friend of a friend of mine who was Australian, and a friend of hers was traveling, and he had bought a hat in Africa that I wore, wore for the night out. And we went to the Algonquin. They almost didn't let us in. Do you, you know the Algonquin Hotel? Yes. Like, they yeah, I've been, those, I've been uh, on 44th Street. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. I've been there. Those shows, like those reviews, you yep. know, and you yep. have to reserve a table, and they were very much into, you know, like, whatever it had been in the 20s or the 30s, whenever it was really, really popular. Yeah, with Dorothy they, Parker, I think, was the right. famous person there. So they always and, wanted to maintain that. And we show up, and this guy with us looked like Crocodile Dundee. This was like in the 80s. Right. You know, Are you saying the, they wouldn't let you in? 
they they tried they almost didn't like they didn't want to you know what I mean I had this like hat on from Timbuktu that right. was like really interesting amazing kind of African hat it was like nothing that you see in import stores normally here you know what right. I mean guys right. up in Africa so I wore that for the night and Victoria was just a wild looking woman like really interesting with this wild red hair and they took a look at the three of us and were like. <laughs> You know, and she was like, we have reservations, you know. But uh, <laughs> And they had to let you in. But it's become, to, but you see, you were actually being an artist in the, uh, the post-art gallery context. You were making your social life and your, in your clothing and your design, your painting. And it well, reflected the, the TV street. body. Yeah, I took it to the streets for sure. I mean, you know, that was back in the day. Like, now they have all these fashion blogs and stuff. But in those days, people weren't the only people that I used to get stopped by a lot of Japanese tourists, you know, like yeah. stuff like that, like you know, or people would see me in one part of town and three days later see me in another part of town and go, "Oh man, I saw you uptown the other day," <laughs> and you know, love what you were wearing, you know. So you were creating a happening. The point is, yes. it's not that you had a job and did this as a as a weekend lark. This is how you you create a collateral for yourself, and people let you stay with them and sublet their apartments or whatever. This is how you yeah. got currency <laughs> by that prestige, I know. right? I know. It was weird. right among the the niche marketing of eccentricity. I mean, there's millions of people in New York City who are into the eccentric, right? And they admire the eccentric. That market is where you survived in for 20 years. Oh. What? Now I'm gonna. Yeah, I said yep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to try something different, but who knows what it is. But, right. yeah, I mean, you know, but that that was sort of, um, you know, probably is very McLuhan in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, you, I, I, not I, very I, McLuhan. McLuhan, in my language, explains the ground that you were unconsciously expressing. That's what it right. means. It's not McLuhan didn't do that, right. <laughs> you know, run around different well, clothes. He explained the uh, phenomenon, or yes, he gives you the way. He, I mean, he presented his book in '68 through the vantage point as a counter to Clement Greenberg, Greenberg, as a, right. a better way to do uh, analyze art, and it right. was the better way. But New York City was not buried by McLuhan. He was wrong there. He, he came to bury. He did. He actually, you know, a lot of the artists in 67 did not get, none of them got, had a TV special made about them. He did, but the very thing he was talking about, the turnover of 200 years every 10, 12 months, would mean that he'd be an ancient memory pretty quickly. But he, he was not living in New York City. He didn't become homeless. He just continued teaching at the professor. So his art, the art part, or invading New York City, was a hobby. And you can do that when you've got more than one body. Right, right. He became famous as a hobby. Right. And it was serious, though, what he had to say. That's what, see, it really gets multi-layered, multi-textured, and folding in on itself. Here he is becoming famous as a hobby, but what he had to say was probably the most important thing since Einstein. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so you can only get enough people to understand it, right? Uh, well, now, now you say everybody can see what McLuhan's saying. People, as an environmental effect, the Andrew meme, everybody knows it's the beginning right. of the end or the end times or the or the change that is hard to articulate. That and most people feel it, but most of them are involved emotionally and uh, scared, you know, ridiculous about the thing. They don't know how to have poise in relation to it. McLuhan gives you language to have poise. 
Right. If you require language, and you do in certain circumstances, you require language. Who came in? Is this someone's going to speak? <laughs> well, if they're not going to speak, I think we should end. I got to do okay. a bunch of stuff with Andrew, and we let me just go see how long this has been. Check the uh, timer. But I, I think um, you. I'm going to put your name on it. Just a second. So we're 18 minutes short of four hours. So that's pretty good. And I think I'll put your name on on our little review. Who are the guests? Because your whole syndrome that you've just been describing of your own life resonates with what we talked about earlier. It's perfect. So you will get guest status. Oh, Just of right. honor status. <laughs> right. Okay, you, but you know you don't mind me putting your last name up there. No, and you okay. know if I do get a chance to scan, I I don't have a lot of photographs from that time, but once or twice somebody would take a, a picture of me in these these clothes. Right. I'll just I'll just send one to you because it's so much wilder than what was in um, New York uh, Magazine. Right, now, yeah, yeah, so good, we can put that on the website. Send it to me, we can put it on the website. Now, here, yeah. now there was, before you show up in 83, 84, 85, and that's after the mud club scene, right? And it's after AIDS has started. You're, you're doing, see, because there was a lot of outrageous costuming going on in the late 70s and early 80s mm-hmm. around the mud club scene and the village scene that led to um, Keith, uh, what's Keith Herring, Herring and those painters, right? Right. Um, you come after that. You're in desolated mid '80s, no money New York City, bankrupt right. New York City's when you're doing this. Right. And then the virtual space, uh, when the uh, computers come in, uh, people get online mid '90s. They're all staying home. Remember the famous cover of New Yorker magazine? It shows an average street in New York City, and everybody's inside their apartment on the computer. There's nobody on the New York street. But you were not doing that. You were on the New York street. And there was a lot of activity on that level, right? You were part of that scene. Right. It's a nanoculture. You were part of a nanoculture. Right. No, I I definitely was part of a nanoculture. And it it was interesting. I mean, it was, um, you know, uh, it was very, I mean, it was something like, you know, how do you record that, talk about it? Um, you know, people would say to me all the time, you should be taking a photograph of yourself every day. And I should have, but it, it, those weren't the days when you had cell phones that you could do right. that with. You would have, well, I would yeah, but have see, set up a... It's a matter know, of, you see, um, a wise men said in the 90s, uh, uh, the real wealth in the 90s was time, how much time you had. You had a lifestyle where you had lots of time to play. You didn't have to go to a 9-5 job. You didn't have to do this and that. You got to enjoy and circulate New York City society on all levels and be the secretary of the microtonality right. symposium, <laughs> which had a lot of famous composers were part of it, right? Composers in the right. obscure art world, uh, nano-music world. But, um, oh, they're doing that again soon, too, like in two weeks. They're doing cage and glass and all that stuff. Are you going to it? Oh, yeah, because I do the, um, the door. You're going to do it. You're continuing doing your role. Yeah. <laughs> you're the no, door I person. I love them, though. Fabulous. It's fabulous sound. It's like, you know, that kind of John Cage, Lamont Young type of thing. It's yeah. Very, now, now, here's what McLuhan said. See, you're describing a world where he said, McLuhan said, New York is not an American city. And 
And I said that to a friend back then in the 70s, 80s. He said, what do you mean? It's the ultimate American city. Now, he was thinking of consumerism, uh-huh. materialism, and capitalism. Yeah, but, well, that's, but that's you know. not what New York is. New York, its spaces, its dynamism, the way people can live there is not the orderly world of Kansas, which is the majority right. of America. Right. So New York, right. in that sense, is not an American city. And right. your lifestyle, you know, the, the, the kid who goes to a university in, uh, in Missouri – Right now, he's 19 or 20, and you're brought in to describe your life in the 80s and 90s. They would be ama- they'd be flabbergasted at how you survive because they they think they got to get a job somewhere, know, right? People, yeah, but, but a lot of people have said that to me. I don't know how you survive, and I don't quite know how I did either. But um, it, it was interesting. You so, you you made yeah. yourself survive so that you could do your your body painting, your clothing right. painting, and whatever right. else you came up with. I mean, right. here you are looking like a wild person, but you're a bureaucrat for the microtonality society. See, right. that's quadrophenia. There's different yeah. selves involved. Well, they're not exactly like, it, to say I'm a bureaucrat for them. <laughs> they're, they're a bunch of avant-garde characters, too, you know what I mean? Right. Just, but you, uh, you showed up and had to take the money. You looked like the respectful, trustworthy person you paid your ticket for. You right. Know? Well, you know, I mean, it, it didn't start out like that. I just, I... I seen a concert and I'd gone to a Lamont Young concert that these guys were putting on and I was so blown away that I called him after this set of four concerts and I said, can I, can I volunteer for you guys because I just want to be a part of it and I'm not a yeah. musician. So, you know, I just got involved with it that way and it's been really interesting because I go to all their meetings and stuff. And, meetings! Um, you went to meetings! Right. <laughs> the meetings! This must fit into McLuhanisms. There must be a McLuhanism about this someplace. But my experience with them is very interesting because it's not my world at all. They taught, you know, these are like sophisticated musicians. Most of them, or several of them, like Juilliard people, this, that, and the other thing, you know, PhDs and so forth. And um, they talk music, like, really intensely you know, at some of these meetings about uh, composing and new instruments and, and tonal arrangements and stuff. And it's like another language to me. Yeah. But there's something that I get from it vibrationally. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't even... Well, everything's vibrational, so I don't think that's what the word evokes. Now, what do you, you, you... In other words, no, you get the joy of espionage to watch a subculture talk its language. You get the joy of doing anthropology. Yeah, it is kind of like that because it's it's like listening to people speaking another language. Yeah, they're fly on the wall. You did a fly on the wall. They're using so why call that? That's, that's not vibration. What do you mean by vibration? That means that you were getting it non-verbally. You were not participant. You weren't the participant observant. You were just the observant. Maybe made some token participatory grunts just to look like you're part of it. But generally, you were the fly on the wall, which is different from being a participant observant. Yeah. You actually were the rare spot. You were spying. Yeah, in a way. And so to call that vibration means it was not visual means of communication. You were using... Well, in, you were being invisible, which is like you would call that non-visual. That'd be vibrational. I think that's what right. you mean by saying vibrational. Otherwise, the word silly, it doesn't mean anything vibrationally. I think, I've, I think you've said that many decades, and I've now taught, taught you how to say it accurately. You were using non-verbal means of perception and participation. Well, that's true. 
I was yeah. using nonverbal means because the verbal part was like, but it's still very interesting, and there's still something I get from it. Do you know what I mean? So you get you get the you get your making. You make patterns in your context. Yeah. User is the content. You right, get right. to make patterns that give you thoughts, new thoughts. Right bashing cliches against other cliches and that might lead right. to a different kind of painting or a new idea. Yeah. That's uh, yeah, that is it. Now McLuhan you know, said this is what's going on in the whole population when they're watching TV in the 50s and 60s. They're getting all these ideas and they don't even know it. Usually they're just numbed out. They don't know how to use it. But they're getting they're sitting like the fly on the wall watching things happen. Right. Well, I do think that I mean, you know, um it it does Things do um, affect you whether you're aware of how they're affecting you or not. I mean, I think that's probably a proven fact, well, uh, right? Okay, the so. McClone point would be, that's not new to say. You know that your, all your senses are being affected and the ones you're using aren't, aren't noticing how the other senses are responding. But then you add to that that media are extensions of your senses and you're not noticing how these media affect your collective life other people and your own senses see so to say that you're not noticing anything that's a given you can now know that's the case then you can begin to notice what you're not noticing right and you do that by watching uh collectively you watch what happens in society what happens to different media like right now we know publishing is a pretty devastated industry right in new york city Oh, honey, I can't pick up a book anymore. It's if, it, if I don't read it on the computer, I don't want to read it. It's weird. Right, and the, and the old medium of print has got to deal with people right. like you that aren't going to buy books too much anymore. Right. Um, right. But the uh, there is still a, bu- a book industry going. There's lots of books yeah, being sold. There's an everything industry. I just saw something today that was like um, advertising uh, Western Union, and I thought things don't really really go away, I mean, unless they're totally replaced. But, you know, a lot of the stuff that, like TV, even though, um, and and they'll get less and less as the Internet, you know, becomes more and more the way that people get that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, but it won't go away. That's right. Now, McLuhan came up with the phrase, the medium is the message. In 1957, he was invited to a radio broadcasting conference, maybe in Vancouver, where they were all worried that TV was going to obsolete them, right? right? The radio broadcasters in the middle of the 50s. And he told them, no, radio is a major, it's like anything else. Once it's created, it doesn't go away. It'll, it'll shift and do different purposes. It'll take on other roles, but you do not get rid of that medium. And right. uh, so he calmed them down if they believed him. But that was before the Android meme. The Android meme replays all media and sidelines the chemical bodies. And so, yeah, there's all kinds of media being simulated in the android meme but the human being's relationship to that is pretty precarious that's the difference i want to hear a really good example of that that happened a couple weeks ago and i kept thinking oh this is a great example bob should hear this i have a nephew in i have a nephew in afghanistan right he's stationed in one of these uh areas where they're doing a lot of uh fighting and stuff right right it's not the internet a couple of weeks ago, um, some guy from North Carolina did a um, piece on his crowd or, you know, group or whatever they call them, uh, 
Tune Troop. Or, I don't know what. <laughs> yeah, to whatever. Anyway, so he's on TV now. Now I'm watching him on TV. My your sister, nephew. Your nephew. Yes, yes. My sister can check everything that he's putting on Facebook because he can, you know. Uh, yeah. You know. But there's no toilet paper. He says that. So, yeah, so it's like there. No chemical body stuff, but lots right. of media, TV right. body and chip body exposure. Exactly. Yeah, it's like yeah. There's not, you know, there's. <laughs> right. And I that's perfect. That, that is this good. This is wild. This is like they're on the internet. They're on television. I'm seeing them on TV, right? And they don't. But they have, can't get like, any TV. chemical bodies, right, right, which is right. my point. The chemical body is a ghetto. Right. The, the whole war is a ghetto for the chemical body. They're running around looking for a bunch of other chemical bodies that are apparently going to blow them up or something, and that's a right. futile endeavor. And right. this is on the this is the way to celebrate the anniversary of uh, Osama bin Laden. Right. It, 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 what is it? We don't even know if he really died or what died. And it's only a body. The, the media coverage, the larger dynamic of this meme of uh, the Iraq war and uh, um, the Afghani wars, those are huge spectacles that employ millions of people. Right. They will right. continue. Right. Right. <laughs> right. I, I mean, you know, I don't even want to say what I think really is happening on, uh, you know, recorded whatever, but I just, it's hard to buy what the show is. The, and you don't have to way. buy, There's, that show does not represent any public. It doesn't represent any chemical body social space. It does not re- represent Americans. It re- represents the TV landscape trying to right. keep itself exciting inside the right, larger right, Android right, meme. Right, 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 and a lot of other things. I mean, I think there's a lot of things attached to it. Of course, I yeah. read too much of that stuff, but you know what I mean? It's like... Well, they won't employ your chemical body, so you have time to engage your other bodies. Right, right. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to change that somehow, some way. It's time for a new way, a new way to paint, right? Right, right, right. <laughs> a new way to paint. Know, a new yep. way to paint. I painted with my clothes for a long time, and I still do, but it's not, you know, I just can't do it the, the way that I did it. Yeah, because that was that public space is yes. not there anymore. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, um, environments change, and people are tweeting. They're looking at their cell phones. They're not going to look at you walking into a theater. You know, they, right? Well, that's true. I mean, they do have. I mean, they have their heads in gadgets. All. I mean, like, I don't know. I looked. Up, I was on the train like yesterday or something, and I look up, and there's three. Ki- I mean, it was a shot. These two like young Japanese kids you know, dressed like anime characters, and they both had their heads in these uh, little boxes, and then there was a kid next to them, also like that, and it was like four of them in a row were like just, (laughs) and they were like, you know, I wish I, you know... Well, you're seeing the chip body, okay? You're seeing a glimpse of the chip body, and that's so prevalent now because it's obsolete. That means there'll be more and more of that what you're seeing because it's obsolete. And the world is groping past the chip body. They're not sure what it could be. Well, it'll be everything. Yeah, you're seeing that more and more because it's obsolete, meaning it's it's not ground. The ground is not the chip body anymore because too many people are engaged in it. Right. Right. The ground is something new sneaking up, and we know what that is, and we will end on that right, point. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> you know who. You right. know who. All well, right. I, know I have to, I have to uh, pick up on the uh, – I didn't get the archives last week yet, so I have lots to get your last lots, week's show. 
Right. Let me just check the number of people listening. I go like this. Oh, no, i got to turn off the thing. He right. thought it will register. But I just want to see how many are supposedly listening, and then we'll say goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> okay, here we go. Put this off. Okay. Did you hear what it said? Could you hear it? No. Okay, it's just for me. One moderator and five participants. So there's four others listening. So they will have to just listen to the recording. Uh, I'm finished. I'm going to the beach. There's thundering outside, but I'm going to the beach anyways. All right. Have a great one, Bob. So thanks for uh, what you've contributed the last hour. This is going to be uh, highlighted. You actually gave us some on-the-ground evidence of a lot of stuff that happened in the 1890s and now. The, the, right. there's, there's no social space for the clothing painter anymore. That's you. Yeah. Trying to find a new space to uh, tickle. Yeah. It's like, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Talk to you later, Carol. All right. Thanks, Bob. Yeah. Take care. Bye.